and that's why it's a, a lot of the time, I mean, asking for forgiveness is better than asking for permission. Because if you go ask, people tend to look and look at every reason why it doesn't meet every single standard. And the, the reality is a lot of the standards that are written in, I mean, look at plumbing, electrical, I mean, building, what, what our um, inspectors can come look at now with the landlord registry and everything, everything is open to interpretation. And if, if you're looking for reasons to not pass, you can, you can find them. I mean, you can build a brand new house and if you bring the right person in, they're going to be able to find something because it's so, com- everything is so complex and there's so many rules and there's so much ambiguity. Nobody can ever be perfect. And you can say, well, I built the perfect, the perfect house, but the reality is you can't. And these standards end up costing, what, what I don't think everybody gets is these standards cost everybody money. And ultimately what's happening with um, real estate values and property tax and everything, the cost is just continues to go up and up and up. And it's because these standards continue to change and get harder. And now you need, instead of eight inches of concrete, you need 12 inches of concrete and all of this over-engineering wall. And I, it's, it's, you can try to design something perfect. There, there's a value component and a cost component where you can only do so much if you want to build to a standard. Welcome to Rio Radio, episode 81 with Ben Cat. You're listening to Rio Radio, the nationally trusted name in real estate investing. We dig deep to discover investors' why in real estate. If you want to skip all the BS and get in investors' heads, you're in the right spot. Be one of the thousands to check out RioRadio.com. Man, Owen, I am so excited we got to get Ben in here. Uh, I at the end of the podcast, I kind of talk about it, but um, Ben is somebody that we have known for, you know, I've known for at least seven years, and I don't know how long you've known, you've known him, but was one of the first real estate investors I ever met in the city that, uh, besides my my business partners, and was just completely blown away by him. I We have mentioned him numerous times on the podcast by name. Uh, we have attempted three times to get him in the studio at, at both faults uh, with scheduling errors or whatever has come up. But uh, I've I've known for a long time that you guys will be blown away by Ben. But with this podcast, you and I both kind of talked afterwards and we're like, oh, my goodness. Did you have any idea he was doing all of that? Well, the thing <laughs> is, like, even though we we tend to go kind of long form in our podcast, which I know you guys love, we uh, only scratch the surface really on his whole story. So it, we I think we'll probably we should have him back for a part two at some point. But there's so many things that this guy has done at such a young age that I think people of any asset class within real estate, uh, if that's your niche, you're going to get something out of this because he's done it all. He literally has done it all. Uh, we talk about so many things from partnerships when he got started, you know, sweat equity, converting that into basically building uh, relationships with people and how he has grown and you know kind of chased the shiny object to uh, great success in a lot of different uh, facets of real estate. So at a not, very young age, at a very young age, and he's not he jumped right into an eight unit property that was his very first deal when he was in his twenties, twenty six years old. Yeah, and has done so so many things since then, and he's bought businesses that uh, and also owned the real estate. So that's interesting, and one thing we'll explore in this episode that I think everybody's going to like. Um, 
I just he's it's so hard to even like describe him because he's done uh, multifamily, single family, uh, commercial storage units, uh, trailer uh, parks, RV parks, um, tiny homes, tiny homes, converting hotels into apartment complexes. Like I don't even know storage box homes. I mean, yeah, storage. like storage containers. <laughs> yeah, containers like, like all that. Yeah, it's it's bananas. The, the story that he has, and it's all kind of in and around the Omaha, Nebraska area. Which anybody listening to this that's local, I think you'll you'll understand and appreciate by hearing where he's talking about, but anybody national that's listening to this, you can get the idea of somebody that's a strategic thinker that is an ace at building relationships with people that can fill out the rest of your business. I think everybody's going to get something out of this. He's literally the most rounded person that we've ever interviewed on this podcast to date. I yeah, mean, he he is. Uh, I I would one hundred percent agree with you. He has been. He's touched almost every single asset class that you can think of within real estate, and has made a like crazy success out of all of it. Um, has he had some struggles along the way? Of course. Has he grown his business to a point where um, he can do some like really cool stuff that a lot of other people can't? Yes, he's also done that. And hearing how he does it is uh, is is really a fun story. So I think buckle up because this is going to be a great episode for everyone. I think all people of all levels in real estate are going to get a whole bunch of stuff out of this. Ben has been on our list to get on the podcast for all almost two years that we've been doing this. <laughs> yes. And yeah. we have tempted over and over and over again. We knew you were going to love it. There's several spots on our whiteboard uh, that have been dry erased that still say Ben Cat. You can read, <laughs> read in the background. So we've had to reschedule a few times. But, but he's here. You're welcome. Uh, just tune into this because it's going to be awesome. Here's a question for you. Uh, based on what we just said, how many people or what names would you drop that are definitely part two podcasts that you want to bring back in? Oh, like, okay. Oh, that's a that's one of a really one, good question. One of them that's been on the back of my head has been Stephen Sykes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he'd be a good one. Jose Pena. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He's Bra- blown up. Brad Bader. Brad Bader. Yeah. Oh, da- yeah. He's da- he's completely transitioned. Yeah. Like, David Bader. David. Ba- yes. Uh, Andrea and Axel Foley. Yeah. They would be awesome. Um, let's see who else. Jeez. I mean, Brandon Turner. Well, that would be, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> he's, he's slightly changed a little bit, uh, in the last, uh, last year or two. Um, man, who else? I like, I don't know. I, I, I would imagine that most of the people we've had on this podcast have grown and done a ton of stuff in the last year, but yeah, it's a, I guess it's a difference in scale. Uh, and and what everybody's goals are, right? And those are just the people that we commu- communicate with on a regular basis, and we know that they have adapted and changed a lot. Sure, so we're just yep. dropping a handful of people, but um, those are some ones where I know we didn't like finish the podcast the way we wanted to, or maybe they're in the first ten podcasts that we did, and we're still trying to discover ourselves. And and in that uh, doing so, we we didn't get as much information as we could have but it was also so long ago that they're in totally different places yeah we were in the what's happening to my body uh zone of the rio radio yeah, podcast we're going progression through, we were going through puberty <laughs> <laughs> that's right cheers to puberty cheers to puberty <laughs> oh man have you had any fun uh, meetings in the last week Oh my God. I got to tell you about this. This is a, this is a very surreal moment for me. This has never happened to me in my life. Oh wow. So this I, be good. yeah. So this week, um, and I'm going to, I'm going to parlay this, uh, listeners into a golden nugget and I'm going to actually let's, let's get into our golden, golden nugget. nugget. 
And this golden nugget is brought to you by JM Real Estate Capital. Hi, it's Rob, JM Real Estate Capital. We're the money guys that you need to know for all your real estate investments. Talk to us. We can do what your local bank can't or won't do. We don't have millions. We have trillions with a T to lend. 844-WE-CLOSE or go online at jmrecapital.com. That's jmrecapital.com. JM Real Estate Capital, smart solutions for the real estate investor. All right. In this business, at some point, you are going to have probably regular interaction with an attorney and a CPA, right? Mm -hmm. That's a given. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Totally. All right. So here's what... I think a lot of people that are in this business do not do. I've talked to both in the last week. Great. Yeah. <laughs> so here's my here's my golden nugget. Stay on the like be on the top of your CPA and your attorney's mind in a good way. And what I mean is, you know, don't get sued. <laughs> but the second thing is let them know what you're looking for. Let your attorney and your CPA know I need to raise money for my business. Here's mm-hmm. what I'm looking for. Here's the type of deals that I'm putting together. That you, this is a very, very, very commonly overlooked uh, method of making contacts. Totally, that you can basically, you know, repurpose into now being your either a friend, b partner, or both on deals. Like, and maybe you'll get somebody that needs something that you offer, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not always like, what do you need? It's like, what do they need that I have? But always let them know. Like, you're if you're in regular contact with your your professionals, let them know. If they know what you're doing, they can be like talking to their clients and saying, hey, I know a guy that does X, Y, Z. Maybe that fits what you're looking for. So I'm I'm saying this because... Because. Because... This happened, huh? This happened. <laughs> so our our attorney uh, extraordinaire, Dan Pauly, uh, with uh, Smith Pauling Associates, he is uh, has been our attorney with Liquid Lending. He helped us set up that business and has been... In, he's on retainer with our company. And uh, like the guy a lot. And he's a master networker. That's like his deal. Mm-hmm. Like he is the guy. So he happened to call one of our uh, one of my business partners in Liquid Lending and saying, "Hey, I I know this isn't in your normal quote unquote buy box, Ted, uh, but this this deal he had a client that uh, needed a bridge loan, and he has a business." And I'm going to leave this a little bit vague, okay? But yeah. the guy has a business, and he is looking for a bridge loan because he's between contracts and raising a substantial amount of capital. So he's going to syndicate his business, not the same way real estate does, but um, the business that he's in was really intriguing and really interesting. And so uh, the point of all this is my attorney arranged a sit-down meeting with the owners of my hard money lending business. So myself, uh, Colin Schwartz, Chris Pomerleau, and Brandon Tauber, and we sat down with the owner of this business and my attorney, and it was a total Shark Tank mm-hmm. episode. Love it. Like it was, it was pretty surreal, man. Like it was fun because they you pitched know, you I, and then they had products and they do a whole skit for me and everything. He totally gave us a pitch. He had a like a video that that was played, and uh, we got to ask the questions that make people really uncomfortable on Shark Tank. I like, wish you would have videotaped. What this. is your cash? <laughs> like I was like feeling like a badass because I'm like, what's your cash burn? You know, on a monthly basis and this and that. But but we were really interested because. Like we need to know that stuff. Yeah. Like, well, how much? What? What kind of a burn are you? Uh, are you doing every month on your cash flow? Like, what is the money going toward if we lend it to you and all this and this and this? So 
it was kind of a private equity play as opposed to real estate, but it's the exact same things that you look at in a real estate deal. You want to look at the net operating income, the potential of it. Where is it? Is it like, is the business located in a place that's going to make sense for, uh, you know, traffic and so forth. But this one in particular was like, pretty much we're taking a big risk if we do it, but uh, we ended up, you know, throwing basically our pitch together and we don't know yet as of today. Uh, so Friday, whatever today's date is, the 10th, um, we don't know if we're going to be in business with this, but we pitched not only a debt play where we're loaning the money, but we also pitched an equity piece of it. So we're pitching 10% of the business and the debt play and oh. so forth. So you played a Mr. Wonderful role. Well, we didn't ask for royalties like <laughs> he does, but uh, it was pretty cool, man. Like it was a surreal moment. You know what I mean? Like uh, been doing this a long time. And then when we were putting that in that spot, a uh, little bit different flavor, but it was it was fun. Uh, we'll we'll see what happens with it. I'll I'll report back if it ends up as a success or a failure for us. Now, do you find that uh, it's probably good to diversify the portfolio a little bit by doing that with the liquid lending company? Yeah. So I think well, this okay. So this was originally pitched to us because our attorney was our attorney for setting up liquid lending, and he also has a client that you know has the business that I'm talking about. But we're going to invest personally. This isn't a liquid lending investment. This is like the owners of liquid lending personally would invest in this deal. Mm. Uh, so it's a it's it's kind of related, but it's not the exact same thing. If okay. that makes sense. Yeah. No. Totally. But I like that. Yeah. It was it was fun, man. I can see the excitement in your face when you're talking yeah. about it. Too. Yeah. I, I'm I'm pumped. I hope I hope it happens. I have no idea if it's it's a total gamble, but. Um, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you, you know, if you look at your available capital um, in in your life, right? So you have to pay bills, you have to make sure your personal stuff's taken care of, then you then you make sure your retirement stuff is taken care of, right? And then if you are fortunate enough to, you know, develop some extra income or um, you know capital that comes into your life. You got to figure out what you're going to do with it. I mean, you're going to put it in a savings account and lose money every month to inflation and so forth, right? So you have to evaluate deals. Uh, if you don't necessarily have a real estate deal you want to plow it into, it's like, okay, what are my opportunities? Mm -hmm. And so then you vet those and you say, all right, this makes sense. And then if you involve enough people in your life that you trust and know and you know have your best interests in, in mind, then you can make decisions about things where you're fine gambling it. Because that's essentially what this is. It's a private equity gamble. Um, but fortunately, uh, that's money I don't have earmarked for anything else at the moment. So it's kind of like putting it to work in a really risky <laughs> position. It's like your, uh, you know, your 10 year old, uh, just barely is over the line for the height requirement on a roller coaster. That's really aggressive. and goes upside down. That's essentially what my money's about ready to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of 10 year old, uh, one thing that you and I both had in common on a personal note is I saw you post, uh, a daddy daughter night. Oh yeah. God. So fun, man. And so what was yours? Uh, so my, uh, Olivia, my, my youngest, uh, she's a fifth grader. And so this is her last year in her, um, her school and she had a prom or kind of like a, uh, ball, I think mm. they called it. So a princess ball. And so I, you know, put a suit on and, uh, a tie and all that stuff that I don't get to do very often. And she got a really fancy dress and some fancy shoes and was super pumped and, uh, like had Jen, my wife, like, I honestly feel more sorry for Jen about all this than, than anything, because 
all day long. She was like having to dress, you know, Livy and like do her hair and curl it properly. And they were like, you know, a little bit, they were arguing a little bit by the end of it, but it was, and I just kind of show up with my suit, you know, <laughs> that's all I got to do. But we went and it was, uh, it was fun. And I took some great, you know, photos and videos and, uh, and she had a great time and we got a, you know, pretty special dance toward the end. We had a daddy daughter dance and I took a little video. I'm not, it wasn't all about the, you know, the social media sh- stuff with it, but I didn't take it, like that. It, it was, it was, uh, it was a very special night yeah no this last weekend so very cool yeah two so, nights two nights ago uh skylar and i went to daddy and daughter night at her dance studio where we didn't have to get all dressed up but okay i but i had to learn some of the dance moves and and she's in three classes did was there a limbo involved no or, oh okay <laughs> but i but i also didn't realize that i should uh i was still w- wearing my work clothes so i had slacks on and and a polo and everybody else is wearing like gym clothes and I, I'm, I'm getting there, and, I, and so like I, I forgot what the first class is. First class is we learn dance. Second class is jazz dance. <laughs> so that, now we're learning jazz dance, and it was like being in a workout class. Do you have to do like heavy jazz hands? Yeah, you know, jazz hands and a jazz walk. Oh, you have a yeah, jazz walk. Yeah, to do a jazz walk. For those of you not on video right now, Ted is uh, like aggressive, gyrating, sh- shaking, oh, wait, <laughs> gyrating his hips, Elvis style. Yeah, that's. I felt like it was like that. It and, was. I feel it. Like, I feel it. Oh, the first one was ballet. Oh, so okay. so I had to do I had to get on my tippy toes. I uh-huh. had to, I had to I had to tip my. I don't know. I'm I'm p- trying to picture this. I had to do this thing with my hands over my head and do this. <laughs> Is it a plie? Is that what it's called? Sure. <laughs> oh my god! And then, and then I had to do the uh, the grapevine walk. You know, grapevine this, grapevine that, and then uh, yeah, and then uh, and then it was like a a song from a Disney one what and was tap dance. So then the last one was tap dance she's in. So I do the tap dance class and this is like <laughs> over two hours. And then so I'm in a tap dance class because the first class got done. I'm like, okay, now I'm done. And I go, do I and I asked the lady, I'm like, do I come back? Does she like, oh no, it's daddy daughter night all night. So each class is is a the different dads, different students. I'm like Oh, so I got to be in three classes tonight. <laughs> oh, wow. It's like a never-ending story. It was yeah, exactly what it was. So then, <laughs> and we had fun, though. And, uh, so we did the last one, and and it was, and like I said, it was tap dance, and I went through it. And and, um, and I'm not wearing tap shoes, obviously, but, you know. We're, I think you could pull it off. Yeah, you could pull it off. But I got some pictures and did some video, but I, I forgot to take – we didn't take one picture together. <laughs> Oh man! You know, because I walked in and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna be the good dad. I'm gonna put my my phone in my truck. I don't want to have any distractions from work while while I'm doing this, you know. And then and then like, okay, dads, pull out your camera. You get to see the you get to see the uh, first person see the uh, beginning of the recital. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah, so I ran out and got it at the end, and I took some videos and pictures. <laughs> or, but my my son's looking at it, Carson's looking at it, and he goes. He goes, man, she looks as old as a, as a third grade. He's a third grader. He's Or even a fourth grader. She looks way too old, these pictures. And I'm like, I agree. <laughs> wow. <laughs> She's in kindergarten, but just so you guys know. <laughs> well, yeah. So it, that, that was a, I, I'm so glad and like fortunate to have been able to participate in that. So you can't, you, can't, you can't miss these things. No, no. And I mean, you know, why like, we do what we do, right? That's right. So I, we had a kind of a dinner, like a uh, hangout deal with a bunch of other dads that had daughters going to this deal. So there were like five or six of us that all like grabbed dinner beforehand and hung out and it was fun, man. Like I don't get to put put a suit on very often, so that was uh, that was also kind of cool. Did you get on, did you get get the suit on? And you're like, man, it doesn't fit like it used to. You know no, I, mean? I I can still rock the suit, the same suit from uh, Men's Warehouse, yeah. but uh, 
<laughs> I, I have a nice suit collection, but I, I at these last few years, I only wore them for, uh, when I ushered at church. And uh, so now they're starting to get tighter and tighter. And I, <laughs> and I'm like, and I started my diet like a week and a half ago. So hopefully they start, I start slimming down to be able to fit in them again. So what did you, what did you start? Tell us about this. So you're, well, it started off as something I just kind of created it my own. It's my, I call it my hybrid version. Okay. <laughs> but it started just, my buddy does this juice diet for 30 days. He does nothing but juice, mm-hmm. period. And I'm like, you know what? I did that for two days and it was like agony. Now, now in the first two days, I I think I lost four pounds in the first two days. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so I'm like, you know what? I can't do this. So I do I do protein shake for breakfast. I juice all day. Now, if I have a client meeting, I, you can't just not eat something when you're doing a client meeting. So I'll have like a I've had Caesar salad, like chicken Caesar salads during client meetings, and then um and then continue juice and and water. I'm drinking like a gallon and a half of water a day, and then. When I go to dinner, right? I do, I do all the dinner uh, preparation at my house, and so I've been giving myself probably ten percent of the meal that I normally would eat because I am I'm I eat fairly healthy. But, you're you're a dinner guy, but I eat a lot of food. And so when I do, volume is your problem. It is, and okay. like literally, like what my wife eats and what my kids eat, I eat probably two and a half times that in one setting. Hmm. So I've slimmed it down and. In the last, I don't, you know, uh, eleven days, I'm down like ten pounds. Good for you, man. So that's awesome. We'll see. You look good. We'll see if I can just keep on. I just want to get to a p- point where I'm like in that two twenty to two fifty range, mm-hmm. and I'm two seventy five when I started this. And if I could at least get down on that and just keep my workout schedule, I think I can just maintain it and just kind of s- lower my portions. Okay. Yeah, so that's the goal. We'll see what happens. That's totally real estate related. Yes, absolutely. Real estate related. <laughs> well, with that, I think it's time to get in this awesome podcast with Ben Cat. We've been trying to get Ben in this podcast studio now for probably maybe a year, right? Oh, and third time's a charm. Yeah. I think I think we've can't, we've had to reschedule twice, once on us, once on him for conflicts and here he is. And then uh, and then we ran into Ben at the BP conference and in San Diego. In San Diego, San yeah. Diego. And had a long conversation on the rooftop. We'll get into that in this podcast today, but um we're like, "Ben, we got to get this locked down." And here we are. We're sitting here with Ben Cat today. We are. Ben, welcome to the show, man. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for, for having coming me. in dressed appropriately for the weather. As always, I yeah. love the I, I love the sweat shorts and uh, my flip flops. Yeah, and flip flops all year round. Year round, baby. Uh, ben, so our podcast a lot of times we really like to find out about the general generational wealth aspect of real estate. And you are uh, like we're not. This isn't about your your dad or your parents, but I thought we might you know get an intro into this in talking about what it was like growing up in a real estate family. Yeah. So growing up, um, definitely always looked up to my dad. Um, he was always doing cool, interesting things, but for as long as I can remember, I'd go and, um, evenings after soccer, whatever, we'd go back to his office. I'd work on homework. He'd be out working late at night. The only one at the office and he was a real estate attorney. So, um, as I got older and started, I started asking him about his projects and everything he was working on. And he had a couple really close part, or I guess at the time they were clients. So I kind of followed him and was able to see some of the deals he helped put together. And that kind of got real estate in, in the back of my mind. He, at the time, wasn't an investor. He put deals together for some mostly home builders and 
Lincoln, Nebraska, go solve complex um, zoning land issues. And he really w- was the guy to go to for real estate in Lincoln, Neba- Lincoln Nebraska. Um, but w- with that, he, he had seen a lot of different things. He'd experienced a lot of different things. So in, in college, when I had the crazy idea, I'm going to buy a house with a buddy and we're going to rent out bedrooms. Um, he was able to help us with the contract and um, co-sign on the loan and uh, give us some ideas, give us some lease templates. And that's really where where it started real estate-wise for me. Um, he's now um, gone from real estate attorney. He transitioned over to owning a piece of a title company and working there to becoming, I mean, real estate's full-time. He does no legal work, I mean, besides looking at our own contracts and that type of thing. Um, he's full-time real estate as well. So we really made the transition about the same time from he had his job, I had my school and everything else I did. And we kind of got into real estate investing at the same time. Um, our paths have continually crossed. It started off, I was doing a bunch of small random stuff. He was doing lot development and more and more our our paths cross and we're doing a lot of projects together. We're having a lot of fun together. And just this last year, my brother also um, joined us. We convinced him to finally leave uh, the electrical union and come join us full time. So now it's a whole family endeavor and um, that's where we are. So when I first met you, uh, was it all your properties that were currently with um, DBG Realty at the time, or was that was that part of your your dad's? Nope, that was just me and Mike Peter. Okay, and so. yeah, because I, I met you, and I mean, you were in your twenties at the time, if I remember right. We're talking I think seven years ago, maybe. Me and Mike started our first pro- first property we bu- investment property we bought was in July of two thousand twelve. Okay, so we're over over ten years now. So wow, wow. Because um, I remember I was here, I was completely new to the real estate world, and and I'm coming in this, and I'm like. I'm like, man, this guy's younger than me, and and he's kicking butt, and I just never seen that before. Oh, and- we were we were so timing wise, we were so lucky to start when we did. I was so lucky to Mike Peter was actually one of my roommates who I rented out a bedroom to in that college house I bought, which was in 2008. Went through. We were good friends through college. Then I moved out of state, came back in 2012, and Mike had been working at America First, so he'd been getting a lot of development experience for making money for other people. So we were chatting. I had come back. I dropped out of law school, didn't quite know what I was going to do. And he's like, we should go buy some property. I was like, yeah, let's go do it. And he was like, well, I found this property on 33rd and Poppleton. Let's go buy it. And we looked at it. We convinced our dads that it was a good <laughs> proposition. And uh, they they helped sign for that first deal. And that first deal, we took rents from $650 a month for these big, huge, awesome, nice units. We've cleaned them all up, fixed them up, and we tripled rents. So that was eye-opening on how quickly you can increase values. And that um, value was then rolled into the next deal, rolled into the next deal. How, fa- how fast did you guys grow in those first couple of years from that first property? Uh, that first property was, I mean, it was eight units. So there's a fourplex on both sides of the street. Tripling the rents gave us some cash to go play with. So we refied that, put some permanent debt on it. And then at the time, banks were taking a lot of stuff back. We were fortunate. We Lincoln Federal had, I don't know, a couple dozen single family homes in Morton Meadows. And that was then our next project. We I think we rolled into a smaller, what was it? There's like 20 of them or something. I think we rolled into about six of them 
clean those up. They liked us. We liked them. So then we bought the rest of them and that started it. And then, um, wait, you went from one property and then all of a sudden you're buying assets directly from a bank. Uh, time, very, very lucky on timing. I mean, you couldn't write timing any better. <laughs> Financing was hard. There weren't any buyers. We were buying Morton Meadows houses for, I mean, it was 60 to $80,000. And now it's, and all those were good, solid three bedroom houses and probably worth like 200 now. Yeah. At least, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, and Morton Meadows, for those not in Omaha, maybe would you take a stab at describing what what it's Um, it's like? It's starter, higher quality starter homes close to the med center, close to, yeah, a lot of the hospitals right in the central part of, well, I guess it depends where you define center. My farthest west is 72nd really for me in Omaha. So it's it's, um, old central Omaha, um, close to all the med centers and the schools and everything. So, so. you're actually probably closer to like 275 value on these properties. Yes, yeah. for sure. Wow. Yeah. If we, if we ever sold any of them. <laughs> yeah. Morton, Morton Meadows, uh, I'll, I'll take a stab at kind of filling in the blanks, but Morton Meadows is kind of like your in most metro areas, you're going to have a downtown area typically develops first. And then beyond that, it'll go further toward whatever geographic, uh, you know, lay of the land is most beneficial. But most of the time you're going to have, Early 1900s stock, housing stock in the downtown areas of most cities, and then it'll develop outward. And then the post-war era, so like 1950s and such, when there was like the baby boom uh, happening, a lot of the midtown areas were built. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. But these are sweet, cool, like unique architectural design type sw- houses. Swanky. Yeah, they're like there's two- brick homes with curved doors and yeah, old, uh, Tudor style, like colonial, like that that type of era. Just some really cool architecture. I think that was the last cool era of architecture. Well, actually, mid century modern. I think kind of ha- if you can make a case for that. Also, yeah. I, I, really, I love Morton Meadows. I really love the ultra modern houses today, though. <laughs> you do. <laughs> Ted's a snob. Uh, so that's okay. So what was that like going from? Well. I, Actually, let me back up. You bought an eight unit as your very first deal. Were you intimidated at all by the fact that there were eight units instead of just a single family? I mean, that's where most people start. How did you have the nuts to do that? It was a smoking deal. Because that's a, that they call them Ben Ice for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean we we're no. I mean they were occupied, so they were. We had tenants in there at that point in time. I didn't know any better, so there was. I didn't have anything to lose. Me and Mike both didn't have anything to lose, and our dads were on board, so we thought it was a good deal. And can you? Uh, okay, so having the benefit of hindsight here, that was your first partnership, is that right? Yes. What What did you do to put together that partnership? And and now that you know what you know, what would you have done way differently? Again, we were fortunate. Mike's dad is also an attorney, so we, we had two attorneys <laughs> who were able stock. to yeah. exactly. Nice. Like sign this paperwork. Okay, we'll <laughs> sign our name and we'll go. Uh, so no, very very fortunate. I mean, that's one you can't put a value on great partners. Um, Mike Peter's been a phenomenal partner from day one. I mean, from college days, we worked on projects and together. It's I, I I trust him with anything. He trusts me with anything, and we've we've never ever. Um, I mean, we're never calculating. It's never like, well, I did X Y and Z. So you owe me X, Y, or Z, or now you have to go do this. There's never been that expectation. And that's where I've seen the best partnerships. I have a lot of really, really good partnerships, but where people aren't keeping score, it makes partnerships so much better when everybody's just committed to to the team and where you're going. Because 
Mike put that deal together. I was, he had a full-time job. So, I mean, I was on the ground from when we had those first eight units up to, I don't know, 80, 60, 70, 80 units. When we first went to a third party, um, I was on the ground demoing, cleaning, um, leasing units. Mike was after his work. Um, at five or six, he'd came over and we'd have double monster nights and we'd be painting walls till two in the morning. And his, his, uh, new wife, she'd be with their dog sleeping on the floor and we'd be painting, listening to, uh, Mumford and Sons. And, um, and that, that's how it went for, for quite a while. And I was invested all day. I didn't take a salary. I kind of, I lived with Mike and Shannon for on and off for probably a couple of years. And, um, I taught from property to property and Mike likes to joke with me. I used to be able to fit everything in the back of a, we had a Chevy extended bed. I could fit all my belongings in the back of that pickup and just back up and move to the next one, lease it out, move to the next one. Um, and so yeah, phenomenal relationship. That partnership went really, really well. So could, could we call that house hacking technically? Yeah, I mean, okay. I, I would. I would too. <laughs> He's the house hacky, uh, <laughs> couch surfing, more For or less. The first, at least the first five, six, five or six years, I was unemployed and homeless. That's what whenever anybody asked me, I'm unemployed and homeless, but growing worked, a portfolio. Worked really well when you met women, right? Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about you. Well, I got I got uh, 60, 60 houses. Oh. But I'm only there for the next week. And then... <laughs> Do you do you drive a Lambo? Well, no, I got the Chevy Cinnabon pickup, and it fits all my belongings in the back. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, okay, so Mike Mike Peter Peters Peter Peter Mike Peter, uh, you two partnered on that first deal, and then what what happened next? So you got the Morton Meadows uh, conglomeration of uh, houses. Put those all back together, got them leased out. Sounds like, yeah. um, based on what you mentioned early on in this podcast, I'm getting the sense that you don't like to sell stuff. Is that no. true? No, we don't. You don't Selling's sell? bad. Yes. Selling's bad. Okay. Let's uh, maybe talk about what what's happened. So you bought an eight unit, and then you you bought basically kind of a mini neighborhood mm-hmm. almost. Uh, and then what happened? What happened next with you guys? Um, we picked up, and then we were just out. We knew what we liked. We knew what we were looking for, and we we're just looking for really good deals that people didn't want to solve. So picked up more single family houses. We bought some bank owned houses from Dundee bank and started a good relationship there. Um, and then we got into some really, I mean, that grew and grew and grew. And we were wherever we found a deal that would, we thought we could put our money in, clean up, bump rents and pull our cash back out. We'd do it. So we didn't turn anything away. We started, when we first started, we drew a line on coming street and we we're like, we aren't going anywhere north of of Cumming Street, and we we kept that line for quite a long time. Um, and really, me and Mike kept it pretty firm. There was a handful we bought up in the Benson area, but we were kind of there. We weren't going anywhere really past Seventy Second Street, and we were anywhere in the Midtown areas where we were focused. Where, wherever there is a deal, we were looking. So we and we went turn away from really anything either. So like we bought a church in a school and like a nunnery building, oh, I remember um, that, that, building. that nobody wanted to touch. And <laughs> what, what do you do with that now? Uh, it's, it's all been sold now. Okay. Um, so it was just, they had a price listed. They dropped it. Nobody I, was looking. I, I was the guy that had to go do like a ever walk through every like three or four days <laughs> to make sure there were some vagrants in there. Yeah. And there was like one random lit up Christmas tree in a broken window. 
Yeah, we were renting out <laughs> classrooms for hundred bucks a month or something in there. It was, um, it was a cool building. It was a cool building. Yeah. We uh, we rented the first. We rented the church out. I think I listed the nunnery for you, didn't I? Probably. Yeah. We got somebody. We we had a tenant. Well, we've sold it. We sold it recently. Um, so one of the few things we've sold. But um, yeah, we rented the church out first to this guy that did gymnastics, and he rolled mats out and brought people to go bounce around because the. <laughs> The, um, it was a just big open space, so it was really cheap space that um, he could make work, and we bought the whole thing for $200,000 or something. It was really, really cheap. I don't remember exactly the the details on it, um, but the reason we got such a good deal was there's an old 1920s school that had been abandoned. The Catholic Church, in some way, shape, or form, owned the whole thing, and they didn't want to break it up, so they could have got a lot more for the church or a lot more for the, the nunnery, which was like a six seven eight bedroom eight bed, eight bed brick well, brick house each had, each had its own bathroom in each yep. unit mm-hmm. yeah. um but they didn't want to break it up and nobody else everybody else with the old school that was falling apart leaky roofs in a collapsed stairway a collapsed stairway yeah. yeah it was um nobody wanted to take that risk and we were well it's a great we know we can make money off the first two so if the school sits there and it was like a whole block yeah the whole block <laughs> it was such a great deal um, so we rented the the church out to some random guy. He fell through. We found a church that then uh, was interested in starting up a congregation in this house. So we did a rent to own with them um, so that they could start building some equity. They ended up buying it from us. And then a nonprofit came and wanted to redevelop the whole thing. So they bought the church out. Um, and then we had the one piece left. And then that nonprofit wanted to buy the rest out. So now we've sold it. I think it'll eventually all get scraped would be my guess, but um, it was a great, it was the gift that kept on giving because we had rents and then we sold the piece off. We were able to do a donation to the church. And then we had the other building that we owned basically in cash. And so that was a random property. Nobody wanted to touch that. There was a whole lot of value in, I mean, we probably tripled, tripled or quadrupled. Our investment ended up being zero. We financed the whole thing. Um, but I mean, we probably quadrupled our money on it over the course of three, four, five years. I don't know. It was such a unique property, and that church was super cool. Yeah. And then, oh, and then the, we you, were able to reuse all the yeah, church pews. <laughs> so we we had partnered then with a husband wife brewer, Viz Major, um, for solving a building we had on Thirty Fifth and Center, and they had a kind of a church themed brewery. So it was about the same time we were like, well, you know, we've got lights and we've got pews that we don't really have a home for. So we were able to recycle that and like the confessional as well that got kind of moved into our bar. So um, yeah, we've kind of salvaged that for, um, yeah. Well, and then Colin Schwartz started, had his meetup first at your place. And I remember yes. going in there for the first time. I'm like, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the church. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Now, uh, what I'm thinking of is like, Okay, you mentioned you did kind of a lease to own with the with the uh, church. Is that right? Did I? Hear I, that I right? think we I think we had a lease and we gave them an option to purchase. I think is how we okay. structured. So they had an opportunity to buy it if they wanted to. I was just picturing what would happen to your soul if you had to foreclose or evict a church. <laughs> like that's probably not good. It's a risky proposition. You'd be inter- condemned to hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I... <laughs> 
I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't know why my mind does what it does, but here we are. But that was a cool purchase. That was like something that other people weren't doing at the time, and that was just another unique thing that was Ben Cat. I mean, I was like, like, who is this mysterious man? So anywhere there's there's a property nobody else wants to deal with, where we love to be there. We love we love solving problems. Our team is really good at solving solving problems. So. And there's lots of value in solving the problem. Now, you mentioned team. Let's talk about the development of what that looks like for you now. So how far along into this? So you, you came out guns blazing, it sounds like, bought a multifamily property, and you've been involved in uh, neighborhood developments. You've done uh, church conversions. And we'll get to some of the, uh, the uh, other asset classes that you've been involved in. But when did you hire your first you know employee and why did you and what did they look like? Not physically, but you know, uh, their background. We had kept, so our longest employee is Juan Ayala, and he started, he worked on that first 33rd and Poppleton project for us. Oh, so day yeah. one almost. All, well, Mike knew another guy, Chewy, who's no longer um, working for us, who moved back to California, but he originally started with us on 33rd and Poppleton. He worked on some projects with Mike at America First, um, and then Chewy found Juan, who was down doing jobs in Plattsmouth, and now Juan's been with us since 2013. So he's going on. He's probably been with us 10 years. Um, that technically they weren't. They aren't employees. They're independent contractors that work for us nonstop. Um, I think our first actual employee was when we started the management company, which I don't know how many years ago. Collective develop that was with collective development, and that was me and Max. Um, I think it was Blake Ewing. I think was probably our first employee who was our first. He was our property manager. So me and Max were doing it too, but he came along with us. He was a Creighton student. He was an intern, and then he came and worked for us for like the first, I believe, the first year. Um, and then since then, we've really ramped up quite a bit as far as employees go. Now we've had lots of contractors that have been with us through the whole, the whole experience. And they're basically, they do 90 or 95% of the work for us, but we always keep them busy, but some of them are employees, some of them are contractors and it's kind of by their preference or our preference, how we handle that. So you brought in a third business partner, right? So Max? Max. Yeah. So how did you guys work that into the partnership? Like how do you guys, how do you tell your, how do you tell your other partner, Mike, Hey, I'm gonna bring Max in, or how did that conversation go? And well, how it worked do you split out the duties? really, really well. So, me and Mike were out looking for deals, and this young guy just who just got hired at Lund was trying to sell us a burnt out building on like 24th and Castler or something. 20th and Castler, I can't remember. It's on Castler. The building's no longer there. It got um, scraped down, but um, we met Max on that job on that for a listing. He walked us through. We really liked him. He was like 20, 22. I don't know. He wasn't very old and he was walking us through and we really liked him, his energy. We said, well, this deal's not going to work. He brought us two other deals. We ended up buying a fourplex from him on 27th and Martha, South yeah, South 27th or South 28th, and then a triplex on 34th and Burt. He put those two deals together for us and we really liked working with him. He was hungry and a hustler and uh we ended up buying, we're like, well, we should go do something with Max. So we started buying commercial properties on 35th and Center. So the three of us bought the side of where Viz Major is. That was our first purchase together. And then we bought a couple buildings across the street, which are now um, Sunnyside and a flower shop. But that that's how it started. And then me and Max, so we were doing that. We're doing focusing on commercial stuff with that group. Me and Mike had the residential. 
And then a frat house came up for sale that, again, seemed like a smoking deal. Mike Peter is more conservative than I am. I was like, we got to go do this, Mike. And he's like, ah, I, I, I don't like it. There's too much risk. So I, I was like, Max, what do you think of this deal? He's like, oh, let's go do it. <laughs> it doesn't take much to, to sell. Max was like, I am all in. So I, I chatted with Mike about that. Mike was like, oh, if you guys go do it, by all means, go go do it. So that's how me and Max got started. So, Ma- so Mike was out on that particular deal. And then you and Max said, you know what? We both like this. So why don't we try it out? Yes. That, that's how that works. And we already had the relationship. I had the relationship with Max. And and at that point in time, I mean, PBPM was big and it was continuing to grow. I was doing it all. And Mike was really upfront. He goes, you're growing PBPM. I'm not doing much. Um, this is really you. Take care of yourself. Um, why grow with me? So Mike was he said, go, go grow with Max. That's a more equal partnership and partnerships. I mean, there's people give more value and less value. And it was never really a question, but Mike, before I, I'd even really thought of it, he was like, go do it with Max. And then me and Max started growing. And now Gilbertar's, which is me and Max's main entity is two or three times the size of PBPM. And, um, but that works, works out well. And now me and Mike are doing some other stuff together. So it all kind of balances itself out. So they are separate partnerships. You guys don't have anything together as all three of you, do you? Not any, well, we, not anymore. No, no, we've bought kind of, we bought a hotel in Plattsmith, all three of us together. Oh. Um, Lisboa was our entity that the three of us were in. So we owned commercial. We bought a couple of random houses and then we had a hotel in Plattsmith. Me and Max have now bought all of that out just because me and Mike have transitioned and we're doing more develop ground up construction and operating businesses. So PBPM's kind of changed. It's become a piggy bank to fund operating businesses and some other opportunities. So so now Max me and Max own most of that stuff. So uh, okay, <laughs> this is what really exploded uh, in in short order here. The uh, the conversation and the description of what what you've done, and uh, with in the interest of like consolidating some of all of the things that you're doing, what 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 with Max, uh, maybe have you taken on that's been a really cool project that you like to talk about? You mentioned the. Uh, fraternity house is there yep. maybe that deal or hotel conversion like what what's been something that, that we could do a quick case study on um the hotel conversions have been a really really good project so we started um we did one together with mike down in plattsmith and how that started we were looking for space for another brew bar or something and there's four bays down in plattsmith and on top of it was i think 23 units that was being run as a hotel in Plattsmouth um, that was losing just a ton of money. They, they had like 10 or 15% occupancy. But so we went and looked and we we're just kind of curious because it looked like a decent deal. And we found out that all these hotel units were actually two, one and two bedroom, one and two bath um, apartment units that were separately metered, had their own furnace, had their own <laughs> AC. And we, we were walking through and looking at each other. We're like, why don't we just rent these? Um and we're like, well, that's if, – if you do that, it makes sense all day. I mean there's not too many people going to stay at a hotel in Plattsmouth, but surely somebody wants to rent an apartment that we could offer really, really inexpensive rents. And we closed in December of I, – I don't know what year, but we put them up for rent. And at the end of January – 2017-ish? 
Probably. Yeah. yeah it's been a f- few years. Because I remember we were helping you with that. Yeah. Yeah. We, First month in January, which is the slowest leasing month in, in Nebraska, we were full. We filled up all 20-some 20, 20 units. Wow, dang. So we were like, huh, there's some demand in Plattsmouth. People want nice quality housing in Plattsmouth. So then that led us to me and Max buying a bunch of as many single-family homes as we could in Plattsmouth um, because at the time they were selling for fifty or $60,000 a door and people would rent them for 900 to $1,200 all day. You know uh- – at least on his podcast, I, I don't think we've ever talked to anybody that invests in Plattsmouth. And I don't, uh, I mean, Rob Church is the only person I know with Plattsmouth uh, rental properties. And he yeah. has a, he has his uh, mobile home park. Mobile home yeah. park. Thank you. Down there. We've got some trailers at Beaver Lake, um, but those are just a couple of random mobile homes that do Max you, found those. But you, yeah. Now, do you do Airbnb in any of those properties in Plattsmouth? We airbnb in the hotel. Yeah, that's what I figured. Um, we did that for a year, year or two. Um, and it did it did okay. But okay. Uh, logistically, it wasn't, it didn't kill it. So it really wasn't worth our time to manage that being, I mean, it's 20 minutes from the office versus mm-hmm. stuff that's closer and getting cleaners down to Plattsmouth was a little challenging. So I think there's, there's opportunity and there's, you could make, there's opportunity there. We aren't right now. I, I always wonder because I, I always wonder what it would be like to have Airbnbs in Eric because I haven't heard anybody doing it. But I figured with the Air Force Base being so close, yeah. it, it's it's but, interesting. We think there'd be more demand down in Plattsmouth, um, but a lot of the Air Force Base doesn't tend to go that direction for for whatever reason. But I want to talk to you about another hotel conversion you did. Uh, the extended stay hotel on seventy uh, second, and so the, in Omaha, this is kind of like in a really busy cross street area. So seventy second and Grover ish. Uh, you bought a how many units was that deal? One hundred and eight. One hundred and eight extended stay rooms uh, that you bought and converted into a uh, basically mostly studio apartments. Is that right? There are uh, there's. No studios. It's one and two bedrooms. One and two bedrooms. Yep. And t- w- would you mind talking about this deal? And I have kind of selfish uh, uh, interests in talking about this. <laughs> Imagine but, that. Yeah. T- uh, <laughs> Nate, let's let's talk about that deal. So this was an extended stay hotel. What happened? How did you find the deal? What did it look like? Uh, well, well, after Plattsmouth and we did that hotel conversion, we were like, oh, there's probably more opportunities out there. So we just started looking naturally. And this one came up. For it was called the Suburban Inn and Suites. It was originally, um, what was it? Was one of the first extended stays. What um, it was the Hilton brand. So it was like their test subject for the country, and they built this one. And I think it's it, Nesta or something like that. Yeah, it was uh, Homewood Homewood Suites. Maybe yeah. it was a Homewood Suites. Um, but yeah, we we walked it, and um, the hotel owner there was had gone through a couple different flags. It lost its flags. It was going to need a lot of improvements to get back to where a national brand would want to carry it. So um, the guy that owned it has a bunch of different hotels kind of all over and he was just ready to be done with it. So we looked at it, we walked them all and we're like, well, this makes sense to, we can make decent money by having $600 rents in on 72nd, the interstate basically. Um, So we walked it, it made sense and we bought it and we started the, the process of, updating the units because they most of them hadn't been updated since like the 80s so there's a lot of old carpet and wallpaper on the walls and all kinds of things but the the hotel already had a maybe 30 or 40 people that were long-term people just staying there at the hotel because they had nowhere else to go so 
Now I'm trying to picture this exactly. I'm I'm I'm, I'm seeing saying second Grover in my head, but there's the there's a the hotel there's, that caught on fire. Yeah. Uh, so there, north of it was by the it's just north of where Coco Keys was. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's on the north side of that, and it's south of they did that 72nd Street the apartments whatever uh, J development I forget what that's called. Yeah. So I actually got a call from a bank. It was uh, I believe Core Bank called me about this property, and they said. Don't know if this is up your alley, and they describe the whole thing. You know, there's this owner, and and he's looking to get out of this hotel. And I was like, I feel like this is. It. I was. It was one of those things where I felt like it was a really good deal, and I was panicking a little bit because I was like, I don't know how to do. Like, I didn't have any experience in raising money. I didn't have enough jack to do it on my own. I was kind of a lone wolf at the time, um, and so I was like, I. Man, this sounds cool. I would love to do it, but I can't, so I'm out. And then you guys did it, um, which is awesome. But I, I would, I'm curious. So anybody looking at multifamily right now, snapshot in time, we're in 2023. I think. Would you agree with this? And maybe we can touch on this just briefly. But the current economic climate is relative to the last several years. We have extremely high interest rates. And an environment where there's a lot of things that were purchased in the last couple of years that are really low interest rates. So buying something now is a lot more, it's it's a lot different than it was a couple of years ago. What what was it about this deal? Like, how did you put this whole thing together? Because I was like, God, I think I have something here, but I can't do it. I, I don't have the people. I don't have the experience. And you had a... a a smaller deal in Plattsmouth under your belt, just like this. But maybe, can you talk about that? Like, how did you even put this whole thing together? How did you get the financing for it? All that. Let's do a case it was, study. Uh, well, we, we'd proven it. So there's less yeah. risk. So we knew that there was an opportunity and we really liked the area. It was a bit outside the reach of me and Max. So we talked with, I've got a group, my dad, me, my dad, and Steve Shampoo. We have rentals and we've been doing things. So um, Steve is also a, deal junkie just like me anywhere there's a deal he's he's interesting wants to go sniff around so it was really all four of us walked it and analyzed it and everybody liked the deal so we were able to i mean it was me and max on one side and me and my dad and steve shampoo on the other and we just went and did it um banking relationships matter a lot we were able to get um dundee bank did that one and they really really liked the deal so we're able to get um our borrowing costs really really attractive and um, yeah, and they, they gave us a construction budget to go clean up the units, and it worked out. We got a great pro forma. We got a great appraisal. And so the deal was really pretty easy. Besides the the deals, it looks – 108 units looks big and scary. It's a big number compared to a single-family house, but it's it's 108 small mini deals is how, how I guess I look at it. So Now, when you're con- – and so this, this particular property was built in – was it the 70s maybe? 80s. 80s? Yep. Okay. And so did you have to go in and like, what were, in, did you have any gotchas with this deal? Not at all. We, we chatted, we, we dug in with, I don't remember the the conversations. We basically made sure that we were, we, we knew worst case scenario, if the city wasn't on board, we could run it as a short term rental and basically if or not as short term rental, we could run it as a hotel, but do long term leases. So if the city wanted to tell us no or anything, we'd, after 30 days, you don't pay a lodging tax. So we knew our worst case scenario, if we were selling, 
signing 12-month leases as we know lodging tax for 30, day, 30 days. Okay. So we, we knew the downside. And again, it helps having a dad who's a lawyer that you can get free advice from. Um, so he was able to dig into it. And if he says it's good, I, I go, I don't try. I just move on and move forward. So do you um, think like, okay, so anybody listening to this, that's like, God, I really want to be, I want to do the stuff that Ben cat has been involved in or some flavor of that. You have bird almost everything. Is that yes. true? So every property that you have bought with the exception of a, of a few, you have kept. So you, the key, uh, well, actually, I don't want to put words in your mouth here. What are, what are the key things that you need to do for a successful burr to be able to get your money back out so that you can keep going in this in this business, in this game? It, it's all on the buy side. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you buy right. That's where you create your equity. And being from the very beginning, one thing my dad told me, he told me and Mike was, there's never enough cash in real estate. We're like, okay, yeah, that's, and it, it's, it's so funny looking like, First, we were trying to solve for like $50,000. And like, oh man, $50,000 is a crazy amount of money. And then talking with Mike and some of his partnerships, like they they had to bring in investors for like, it was like $100,000. And it's like, well, that's, today it's like, well, that's that's easy to solve, but it's always a factor and you just keep adding a zero and then you're, well, half a million dollars is a lot to go solve. And the more you do, it just keeps rolling and it really is a snowball effect where it gets bigger and bigger and your deals get bigger. So you're always, there's always a struggle and, you're always having to hustle to get the next deal done, but it's because it's a factor of two, three, four, five of what you've done in the past. And I think it's, um, I mean, real estate keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and there's really no, no end to it. So you're constantly being pushed. Um, but yeah. Are you consistently bringing outside money in, uh, to get this going? we, We haven't done any really outside money, at all. And that's what we're, we're starting to look into because now with the land development deals and buying, as opposed to buying a couple houses or a couple apartments, buying a hundred acres or 400 acres, it's those factors keep getting bigger and bigger. And we're always, it feels like we're always having to scramble to get a few nickels to put a deal together. And it's <laughs> because, nickels. um, but it's because we've constantly reinvested in ourselves over and over and over again, which becomes a really compelling story. We haven't, gone and asked anybody else, but we also haven't taken the time to stop and tell our story and kind of document our successes. So it's, I, I'm jealous a lot of times of seeing like you guys with, with liquid lending and Colin with what Colin's been able to do and pull all his investors together. We don't have the investors that, um, I think most other people do. It's just been reinvested over and over. And it was started with a thousand dollars I put into the first thing and then it rolled to the next one and to the next one. And, um, we, we have solved a lot by, we pay down debt aggressively and we've d- do a lot of 15 or 20 year am type things. And what, what we've done, what me and Mike did, and then me and Max do is each year we'll pull properties out and we're continually paying down debt. So our lines of credit have grown so that we can go jump on properties and put cash into a deal on the front end. And then we'll figure out financing on the back end. Um, and I think banks like to see that is because we're all in on a project and then we're looking just for a takeout loan once it's been stabilized. Um, but that gets harder and harder when you're doing, if it's a 400 acre multi, I mean, multi with apartments and commercial and single family, it gets harder and harder to do that. So um, that's where we are today. And I think we'd like to, we're going down the path of starting to reach out and kind of build an investor 
we'd like to do that. I think that this year and the next, we'd like to start figuring that out. <laughs> go ahead. There's so, more, <laughs> so many places to go with this. You all, I, okay, what I want to ask you about is you have a bunch of different properties that you not only own the real estate, but you own the business that's operating inside of it on a commercial real estate uh, business. Why, why do that? What do you have? And like, let's talk about that a little bit. So that's Mike is leading that charge. I have very little, I'm an investor. I own it with Mike, but he's been building that whole team. And that's really where he's wanted to go next is, uh, I, I guess operating businesses is the best way to describe it. But the, the theory behind it is real estate's been getting more and more expensive. It's harder. It's nearly impossible to do what we did back in 2012 through 2018, where we could go buy stuff, create instant equity, turn it, put debt in place and move on. Um, but businesses, there's lots of small mom and pop businesses that are run very inefficiently and they don't have systems. They don't have places. They don't have a team supporting them really a lot of small businesses are because of the two owners, the husband and wife who get up at 6 a.m. and they're there till 10 o'clock at night. So we see opportunities the same way we saw opportunities in real estate. We see it for some operating businesses in the future where we can really um, buy stuff cheap, put some um, systems in place and create operations where then we can get a cash machine is really what we're looking to do. So we started, the first thing we did was we partnered with a husband and wife on a building. Uh, we, we own the build. me and Max own the building, but we put a brewery in on 35th and center of his major. Um, Tom and his wife, Lindsay, I mean, phenomenal operators. They brew great beer, great, great partners. Um, and very, very successful business. Um, we, they, they have a controlling interest that did really well. And knowing us, we want to go grow and expand and they're they're happy with what they've got. They've they have a phenomenal product, um, a great life. They live close to the the business, and they aren't quite. Not everybody thinks like us, and that was one eye opening experience. Not everybody wants to grow and grow and grow and grow. So that led us to starting another brewery, Site One, which the real estate meetups now at. And then we've done a breakfast place on Center Street. That now we have one out in Elkhorn. Um, I've been, I've been to the breakfast place quite a few times. I Sunny see, I see you there a lot, actually. Yeah. And I, I was actually in the meeting. I was like, I think he probably owns the place because he's here all the time. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. He, he brought in a Yeti with a sunny side on it. So anybody in Omaha listening to this, check yeah, out sunny side on center. Yeah, yes. sunny side on on center looks uh, or looks out in Elkhorn. I think sunny side. I don't know if it's just sunny side on, in Elkhorn. I, there's one out in Elkhorn too on 204th, along with the site one out there. We did a bull moose as well, and then we partnered where we're kind of minority partners on uh, the Omaha Dog Bar. So we're starting to do more yeah. and more um, operating businesses, and it's definitely a lot more attractive when you own the business and you own the land, which we're finding out. Out in Elkhorn, it's really hard to get commercial spots where you can go build something, so we're leasing out there. But um, So we've been doing that. Um, and then we've been doing some op, um, the other operating. So that's all with Mike, Peter, and we've got a team. Uh, his sisters joined us, uh, Jenny, and then Melanie, um, who's she's created all the all the pr buildings and built them out and creates phenomenal product. I mean, they're really cool places when you get in there. Um, the other piece of operating businesses we've done is on then the other side with me and Max, where we've done some um, event type stuff along the Elkhorn River, um, and we're 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 close. I think today we're we're under contract, but we're going to be doing a um, 
there's there's a winery that we're going to go by and we'll do some weddings and stuff out out there. So we're going to get a party barn to do more events because we have an in-house um, lady, Angie, who's phenomenal at events. She's been selling events along the Elkhorn River at a kind of a rundown place. So we're we're growing some operating businesses on me and Max's pretty soon, side as Pretty well. soon Ben's going to be like Cutchel Management. Well, <laughs> it's the, I mean, this whole thing is kind of flying in the face of stay in your lane, right? Like what we're, what, what all we're talking about here. And like Ben, what, of, ben but, what's your buy box, man? <laughs> but but, but I, I would say the difference is I've got phenomenal partners and like the partners are great at what they do. I mean, Max is phenomenal at our management company. He's got that down to a science. We've got a great team with Sam and Nick and Ashley. Everybody behind the management side is awesome. Mike and Melanie have created a phenomenal team operating all of our operating type businesses. We've got um, short-term rentals, Airbnbs with Joanne is just lights out. She's she's phenomenal at everything she does and is able to manage. And now we've got Angie who came from Vegas and she's all about events. So everybody – and then my dad and Steve are phenomenal at finding deals and putting land deals together. So, I mean, I'm very, very lucky and fortunate. Everybody around me is just phenomenal. And I just get to kind Wait, of, what do you do? <laughs> What's your role in all this? I show up and sit at my desk and uh, pick up the mail is basically what, what I do. So no, I'm it's, I get to see a bits and pieces of it all, but by no means I'm not the one responsible for, but you are the one responsible for getting it going because if it wasn't for you, Sleeping in your truck, going house to house, <laughs> you wouldn't be able to got got this going. Yeah, it's been it's definitely been a team effort, and there's some. I'm very fortunate with all the people who are around me that make what we're doing Cause very you, successful. Cause you give up five years of your life to get this started. Well, it's, it's been ten, but it, but it's, it's I mean, fun. That, I enjoy but, it every but day. The, is, but the first five, though, I mean, yeah, when you were living on couches and couch surfing, you gave up part of that life, part of your life. Of, no, I, I I loved it though. I mean, it's so much better than it's. I can't imagine doing anything, anything else. I mean, if, if I had a normal job, I'd be miserable. So that's one of the reasons I dropped out of law school is after the first year, I was like, no, this isn't for me. It's a poor investment. I'm going to go do something else. So um, I, I'm very lucky to be doing it. Every day is different and a whole lot of fun. And Well, let me ask you this, Ben. So everything that you've described so far, I would imagine that everyone, probably 99.5% of people listening to this, don't have the experience or the wherewithal to do the things that you've done. What, what do you actually enjoy doing? And it sounds like you have some partners and uh, staff now that you can offload things that you aren't, you know, either aren't worth your time doing or you don't enjoy doing, or they, they just don't fit what's going to be best for the business. Like what is, what's Ben Katz role now and like for the foreseeable future and your partnerships? Uh, I love finding deals and solving problems. Okay. So where that, that fits in perfectly for, for real estate. I mean, it's constantly a treasure hunt on what could be the next deal. What's the new interesting, cool idea that we can go capitalize on and seeing, seeing growth. And I, I love seeing a start and an end to a project. I mean, that's really fulfilling to be able to go drive by a property and be like, well, it used to be ugly and, mm-hmm. not, and then you go back and it's all shiny and new. And it's like, well, that's, that's pretty cool to be able to see. Now, I didn't ask this, but I meant to. Uh, you got several of these like owner-operator businesses that you also own the real estate in going during COVID or in and around you know, 2020. 
how were you able to like weather the storm? I would assume, you know, going like having if anybody remembers this, because I think a lot of people are like blanking out on that time frame. But we like, want to forget. Nobody <laughs> could go to bars. Like, were you kind of freaking out a little bit at all? Like, it wasn't all aces, right? No, oh, for sure. No, it's it's uncomfortable. But having cash flowing assets as a backup. I mean, we're fortunate because we have a lot of assets that have even if we lose a handful of tenants. I mean, we still have cash coming in every month. So that's a a great backstop because I don't earn a salary and. Max doesn't earn a salary and very few of us earn salaries, but we have cash on the back end of assets that have money coming in every month. So, um, no COVID was, I mean, sales were close to close to zero for a while. And I mean, because of PBPM and that starting in 2012 and buying good assets and having rents that have increased, having that as a backstop made it possible for sure. Um, so cash flowing assets are important and that's why land development becomes scary is if you have a farm, it's, it doesn't produce anything and it doesn't produce anything until there's actually somebody out there living or there's a business out there paying rent. So, um, combining, I mean, it, it's very fortunate that we started our portfolio with solid cash flowing assets because that's been the backbone. And that's also important why, I mean, not having sold anything, we, we have that every, and Debt continues to go down, and we keep having cash in every every month. And um, by being in a low leverage position, we can always well not all. We're hopeful we can go put debt on a property if if we need to in the future. That's not a given. But now I hear a lot from builders that they're kind of holding back right now because they're afraid, because the costs of, of building has that affected you at all? Are you holding back? Or are you just going forward? Um, building is challenging for a lot of reasons, and costs supplies, co- and supplies yeah. have come. Supplies were really, really challenging. So for some of our projects, we pre-bought a whole lot of supplies that then we have to store and carry. And now with inflation going up, it, some of those look like really good buys. And it's still expensive to hold that inventory. And there's risk where they can be stolen depending on where you're storing it. And and building in general is really challenging because you rely on a lot of people and a lot of trades. And um, it, so building is challenging. Um, new construction is challenging compared to our rehabs where we can go, we know exactly what we're doing and we have our crews that are intensely loyal to us that just go knock stuff out. So it's, it's, it's a new, we're building new experience in that. And I I mean, I'm fortunate with like Steve shampoo, one of my partners, he's been a builder for 30 years, him and his brother have had prairie homes for a long, long time. So there's, there's people I can rely on that, um, I, I'm no expert at all. I know very little about build. I'm learning more each day about building, but building's challenging. High costs are challenging. Um, new construction is challenging. And it's only getting with property taxes and insurance and all the costs are only getting harder, which I think means there's a lot of opportunity. Anywhere you can get affordable housing, there's a tremendous opportunity because nothing's getting cheaper. There's no way to get cheaper property. You can't build for what you can replace what you can buy old stuff for. So, well, there's a, there's a cool thing that you used to do that uh, you used to take a group of people and head out to China and actually felt and actually go buy right from the manufacturer, the supplies you needed for your projects. Is that correct? Yes. And we're, we're uh, working on, we're about to order our, a couple, we've got a couple test shipments in on some flooring and some decking. We, uh, partnered with. So we got one other kind of side business um, with this guy, My- Michael Shan, who's phenomenal. He's done work. He's kind of worked with some of our building companies and 
but we're going to start importing more and more stuff uh, directly from China. He used to work at Walmart, so he's phenomenal negotiator. He grew up in China. He's got connections. So that's so he's the one that put this idea in your head. Uh, no, we met Michael af- after the fact. So okay. uh, yes, it just met. He magically appeared and uh, is again a phenomenal partner who's done. He, he negotiated and bought stuff for Walmart for years and years and years. So we've we've created a an entity with him where we're going to be buying and bringing more and more stuff over from China. What kind of savings did you actually have flying to China, going to the manufacturer? You guys got a a shipping container, right? So from that trip, we didn't end up buying. I mean, that was more of a educational. Okay, experience. I thought you. I thought you guys had done this a few times. Mm-mm. No, okay. we. Uh, the, the first shipment of flooring I, six months ago, we had one f- a couple test things of flooring come in and some decking materials that um, Steve used it, a handful of some rentals he's building. So um, we're really really close on getting that up and running. Talk about going next level. Yeah, you I, guys I, want to buy any flooring? We're selling. <laughs> I, I'm in, man. Yeah, my I, point I, this I got like sixty thousand square feet of flooring. That perfect. Uh, that we, we should need. talk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ben. All right. So I would like to see maybe the darker side of the of the business here, and maybe a, an example of a deal where we could, uh, you know, parlay into our failing Yeah, good job. Uh, do you have any anything that hasn't gone according to plan? Any deals you can think of that maybe you learned something from that uh, were disasters to start with? Forty um, third and Davenport. Um, that Mike sold me on that one, so that's kind of Mike's fault. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, we uh, we had a fourteen plex on forty third. We still have it on forty third and Davenport. And Mike had done with his projects with America First. He done TIFF and. A bunch of other things. So that was my first TIFF project. What, what is TIFF? You mind giving a, a quick riff, uh, basically, riff on Basically, you get – if you increase the value of a property and you go through the process with the city, they will – you say you increase property taxes $100,000 a year, they'll rebate that back to you. Um, it's tax incremental financing. So that property was assessed at like four hundred dollars or $500,000. We submit a big form of paperwork. We go to the city. We make plans and everything. And then anything above that $400,000 for the next 10, 12 years, they will cut a check back to us. And then we can go finance that future tax revenue with a bank so we get more cash up front, less cash out of our pocket to go do the improvements. And basically, it's the city allowing you to go improve the property and gain from an increased value in that property. So essentially, you're taking what it would normally cost you to build something or or repurpose something, and you're saying TIFF could basically sit on top of that as a reduction in your overall cost out of pocket because yes. you'll get and reimbursed then, and then, for it. And then that loan that's outstanding is repaid through the increased property taxes. Okay. So so like if, if I'm a $400,000 valuation, it goes up to a million dollar valuation. There's $600,000 extra that's being taxed each year to the assessor, they basically rebate that money back to you. And how long does that period of time last? That's I think it's 10 or 12 years or something like that. Okay. So what happened next with this uh, particular (laughs) deal? (laughs) Well, the the problem with TIFF is they want to see your plans. They want to see exactly what you need to do. And you have to go through every single check mark of the city and the planning and the inspectors and everything else. So a project that we could have done cosmetic rehabs to get to – 
basically the same product and basically the same rents. Now I'm held to a higher standard to bring this. It was three different buildings. And because it was three different buildings and there was a six unit, I had to go sprinkle, sprinkle the whole thing. And these are concrete floors and there's bricks. And if I wouldn't have gone through this process, I wouldn't have had to put sprinklers through, which was like a two or $300,000. It was, it was a big number. And then we had to wait on the inspectors to come through and we're, we're changed because then we changed more of the electrical and we did some other um, I guess we did other improvements that we wouldn't necessarily have had to do, but because of TIFF, we then had to, we were opening up a can of worms by doing that. You're on the city's radar. They hold you to a higher standard. And because of that, all our costs went, I mean, we we're getting tax rebates back because of the TIFF, but all that extra money we're getting back is basically going to pay for the super building we built because of it. So I didn't see a big benefit and then it slowed down our pro- process tremendously. I mean, it took a lot longer to complete that project. Now so, it was a good, good experience to learn how to do it and everything. And I think it makes sense on new construction where you're already held to a, a higher standard, but it didn't fit our business model of how we go in and get things cleaned up and nice, not taking it. We take it up nice. We don't take it up to like a Cadillac standard. Like when you're redoing everything you have to do. So now when you get, when you get TIF financing or you're, you're trying to acquire TIF financing, you, you mentioned plans a few times. I'm assuming you have to involve an architect in all, in pretty much all cases. Is that do, for, for the ones we have? We have. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're repurposing a building or you're building ground up. You're going to have to have architectural plans, there's a lot more red tape involved and you know like you were saying they're involved from the beginning at, per the city and they're going to slow down your process yeah, you can't well, fix you have to replace on pretty much everything yeah which so, really throws a wrench in compared to how we we had traditionally run up until that point it was just a whole different standard that i wasn't aware of mike had done on new construction but ultimately if i could make that decision again i wouldn't have done tiff i would just paint it and the new appliances and call it a day. Now, uh, if you don't mind, uh, if is there anything, if I'm out there and I'm looking at different properties and I think, you know what, maybe I should do TIFF on this one. Is there anything where you're like, you know what, you shouldn't do that because of X, Y, Z? Like, are there any things that make it work better on certain projects versus others that people listening to this might, you know, have never gone through this and, and uh, could take some advice I, from you. Th- there's no risk if it's new construction or if you're going to take everything down to the studs and build, comp- if you're basically building brand new, whether it's a rehab or a new construction, there, there's no downside to it. You might as well try and go through the process. It's, it's a process and it takes time and there's agreements you have to sign, you have to pay for lawyers. I mean, there's, there's costs. So it needs to, it doesn't make sense on a single family house, mm, okay. but um, if you're increasing property value significantly, it, it makes sense to do. Is there any um, maybe? And I, I know you're not officially stating this, but is there an unofficial number where if a project's above X cost or X purchase price, where you might consider doing it? Uh, I'm not the right person to okay. ask. I, gotcha. I don't just based on studs. No, multiple stud, millions stud of dollars. Level. I yeah. think is um, where it would. That's if your you're safety, making, no, safety yes. zone. It Got needs it. at least be a million dollars, probably more than a million dollars to make it worthwhile going through the, okay. the process. The pain and suffering. Exactly. <laughs> now, in this particular property, though, by putting the sprinkler systems in there, obviously you create a safer spot. But it, Maybe. It, it's all concrete. We have smoke detectors and alarms. And it, it, you can make that argument, yes. So insurance is going to be cheaper. May, maybe. Maybe. A I, little. Yeah. And then uh, on the other aspect of it, is the value of the property going up quite a bit by adding these features? 
Uh, we haven't sold, so to okay. be de- determined. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you have an idea of what the what the value of the property is. Yeah, it's, it's worth more than we've put into the building, but okay. it would. I don't think somebody would go pay more money for that building today because it's got sprinklers and because people care about the rent it generates. Yeah, and tenants I, are not paying more true, true. because there's sprinklers in it. Yeah, I would agree. It's one of those things like uh, like if you're flipping a house, you get you add no value by replacing the furnace or an air conditioner. Like it's just because they expect it they to expect be. it to be there, or like you're replacing the plumbing lines or whatever. That's just a sunk cost. So yeah, anything that needs a shitload of mechanical uh, work or replacement, like generally you're not going to get much of a value add. Although if you do that, you might be able to sell the property, whereas before you might not be able to with out difficulty that's my my thought on that yeah. but uh yeah that's uh i that's fascinating stuff now i want to talk a little bit if you don't mind ben about um you've got a uh let's see I, what would you call it a development or like a, a campsite where you've done some uh tiny uh, tiny Elkhorn. houses yeah, yeah so you we, want to talk about that a little bit how'd we, that come about we originally we bought a property on the elkhorn river in blondo just because it was a good deal there's some houses out there um a bunch of land, so it was nice, and it was along the river. Another piece came up to the north on Maple that they'd been running some events out there. There were some RV spaces out there. That just seemed like it was a really good deal, so we jumped on it. Um, and then we th- had the idea of, well, let's go do some uh, tiny homes out there. So we built some tiny homes out of cargo containers and stuck those out there. And, and by the way, those are beautiful. I, I, I went to your, your launch party for that. Uh-huh. And I was blown away in the quality that you did they, on those. THI built those for us and they did a awesome job. They put shiplap throughout them and, and everything. And there's the, the rules along the river. I mean, you have to be able, because it's down in the, the floodway, you have to be able to get um, anything that's down there. You have to be able to get out if a flood's coming because people don't want the stuff floating down and causing damage <laughs> down the road. So it's... Uh, Basically, it was kind of where they're they're kind of like RVs. They can be moved quickly. Um, and up until now, there, there's never been a big issue with stuff down on the river. I mean, if you go up and down it and you look at everybody, people have all kinds of crap up and down the river where typically it's out of sight, out of mind, and um, nobody's really caring. Um, un- unfortunately, we somehow we got report. They're now making it an uh, issue on having stuff down there. So recently we've had to remove all the the tiny homes out there, and we're relocating those to another property. But um, the the city and the NRD, they're starting to enforce more of river cleanliness, I guess, as far as what's down, down along the river. And I think it technically now they want to see wheels where it can be pulled out right away. And so – so that that's been one that we've we're, we're working through. We're we're solving. We have another location for it. Um, we didn't think it'd be an issue, but it's an, now an issue. So we're having to kind of pivot and move it somewhere else. So and you had utilities going to those units too, didn't you? Those all yeah. Well, they were plugging into because there's it's been an RV park for a long time. So mm-hmm. as it, we were basically putting them on RV where there was they used to have RVs plugged in. We had these tiny homes plugged in. So. The same. I mean, it's basically an RV. It's just in a container as opposed to a shell. So there's there's different rules and there's different standards and there's different specifics. And I, I hate. I mean, I dropped out of law school. I don't really like the details. So <laughs> you you learn as you go. Um, and the good news is we have another great site that's on the Iowa side of the Missouri River, um, where we've got um, 
a place we can go stick them and we're just relocating those those tiny homes so at least we we have a spot for them and we could reuse them it's just a little annoying we have to pick them up move them and for a long time it hasn't been an issue and now now it's an issue so well yeah this is kind of the i mean this is the this is the case for not being in the limelight right like you know if you're just like you said, uh, out of sight, out of mind with some of the properties that are there already. And you yeah. come in and you try to do the right thing. And they're like, oh, well, yeah. hang on a minute. You're going to have to bring that... everything up to code and you got to get it out of here. And if it needs to be out of here and blah, blah, blah. Right. So and, they made it prohibitive. And that's why it's a, a lot of the time. I mean, asking for forgiveness is better than asking for a permit. Because if you go ask, <laughs> people tend to look and look at every reason why it doesn't meet every single standard. And the, the reality is a lot of the standards that are written in, I mean, look at plumbing, electrical, I mean, building, what what our um, inspectors can come look at now with the landlord registry and everything, everything is open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're looking for reasons to not pass, you can, you can find them. And I mean, you can build a brand new house and if you bring the right person in, they're going to be able to find something because it's so, everything is so complex and there's so many rules and there's so much ambiguity. Nobody can ever be perfect. And you can say, well, I built the perfect, the perfect house, but the reality is you can't. And these standards end up costing what, what I don't think everybody gets is these standards cost everybody money. And ultimately what's happening with um, real estate values and property tax and everything, the cost just continues to go up and up and up. And it's because these standards continue to change and get harder. And now you need, instead of eight inches of concrete, you need 12 inches of concrete and all of this over engineering wall. And I, it's, it's, you can try to design something perfect. There, there's a value component and a cost component where you can only do so much if you want to build to a standard. So, um, yeah, it's definitely all those rules in there. There's a gray area and a lot of those rules and, it's better to go try. And if they tell you you're wrong, accept, because you can't fight it. I mean, we don't control our properties. There's people who tell us what we can do with our properties and you move on to the next, the next uh, solution. So, um, yeah. There, there's one thing that you do fight though. And uh, uh, this would be a great golden nugget for the episode. I, I listened to you speak um, at a local meetup and you told me that you fight your property taxes uh, on a monthly or yearly. Uh, every year. Every year. Yep. Can you explain your process? Because you're the only person that I've heard that actually makes a system out of this. So every year we get, um, it seems like every year they have a preliminary. Well, you get assessed every year on your property values. And um, each year it seems like they go up and up and up. So they, they have a preliminary that comes out um, in January. You have an opportunity to go meet with uh, a referee, I think is what they call them, and you can walk them through and like, well, this property shouldn't be worth this, and you need to tell them why. You need to tell them either, well, this is where rents are, and these are where our expenses are. I have the same house as my neighbor, and he's at 100000 I'm at 150000 There's a lot of different um, ways you can go about showing that you don't have the value that they want to show and you go have those conversations and it's free to do. It takes time, but you can go meet with a referee and different appraisers and they'll go through and look and maybe your condition's not good. It's average or fair or poor. Um, so we do that every spring. We go do the preliminary ones for basically the most outrageous ones. We, we've had a handful of properties that this year that went up over a hundred percent, which even if they, I mean, you think about a normal homeowner who escrows their taxes and their insurance and everything to go double taxes is crazy. Um, 
So yeah, we, we go through, we make a list every year. We have somebody go through and pull all the stuff off the Douglas County Assessor. That's where most of our properties are. We're also in Sarpy and Cass and a few other counties. But then we go through and we, we I mean, each year we, we're fighting the worst ones. So we're able to then look, what was the change from last year to this year? Does that make sense? Do we want to fight it or not? Um, and then we go protest all of them. So like the... Um, do you Do you physically go and talk with people or That's is this something the, you do? Yeah, they let you go online or in person for the preliminaries. It's, it's only online, but okay. I always go in person because I feel like that's more effective. more effective when you can look somebody in the face and say, come on, what's you're like, bro. Yeah. Come on. When like you- I've got this house and field club and it's four months of rent to pay my property taxes. Is that fair? I mean, I, we still have to pay for insurance yeah. and we have to do debt service. And if the fridge goes out, that's a thousand dollars. And, it's like either you don't want landlords, and that's fine. I mean, yeah, just say you don't. Exactly. Say, say you don't want landlords. But four months of and tenants don't realize that. So we've talked about it just because it seems like a lot of the people don't care. And with all these increased values, there's so much more revenue being generated. They should drop the levy, but they'll go find a place to go spend every last dollar of that, and then we're in the same position. Yeah, new parks, whatever. Um, which you know, that's fine. But yeah, but but it's a huge disadvantage for. Nebraska by having our property taxes the way they are, because we've also, I've looked elsewhere and we've got a few things going in like Memphis, Tennessee, similar rent, similar property values, but insurance and property taxes are significantly different. Um, And it makes a huge difference on investment. I mean, we've got to build the rent community that we're talking with some out of state investors who were interested in it. And because of our property taxes and papillion, you can't make, you can't make the numbers work. So, and then you go look at like the average middle class family, like in Papillion, if you're buying a half million dollar house and you're paying over a thousand dollars a month in property taxes, it's, you know, when you who can, aff- who can afford a thousand dollars a month? I mean, that's, we used to have rents that were $500 a month. And it's because you have to pay for all this other, yeah, other when, crap. When you go fight this, uh, can Owen and I do a field trip with you and, and, and just <laughs> watch, watch, watch you at work. We'll do a little case study on it. Yeah. yeah it'd be, uh, it'd be fun. When, so. when are you going to be doing that next? Uh, Max is Max already did most of ours, the preliminary stuff. Um, I've got a handful, I think, towards the end of February that I've got mine. So. I think we should do it. It'd be fun. That would be fun. But on <laughs> the op- opposite end, you kind of do just the opposite when it comes to appraisal time. Yes. Well, <laughs> I want my appraisers to tell me my property is 10 times what it's worth, and I pay a tenth of a cost. You, you have a process, and I have the same process, but can you go over your process that you do when you know that you have an appraiser coming into your property? Yeah, and I really I learned this from from Mike, I mean, way back when was, I mean, and, and also my dad, these appraisals are an inexact science. I mean, there's, um, you can have, if a, if there's a $150,000 house, some people can think it's worth a hundred and some people can think it's worth 200,000. And when you're financing and trying to get your cash back out, I mean, every extra dollar of value, I mean, that's money in your pocket. You, you can so go make a break for deal. a new investor too. For sure. For sure. So, um, I mean, what, what I have found is that the, the best way to interact with appraisers is do all the work on the front end for them. You make their lives as easy as possible. Um, so if I'm doing a house that I've rehabbed, I'll pull all the comps, I'll give them my projected rents, I'll give them my projected, and then I'll give them a value. And I'll send this spreadsheet with basically everything that's in an appraisal. I'll put that together in a spreadsheet and send it to them and say like, hey, here's the house. Here's my information and my data. This is, uh, you infer this is the value you think it's it's worth. And um, it's successful. Because it's it's less work. I mean, 
all the data is subjective and they could pick house A or B to comp you to. I mean, if, if you say, well, here's comp B and here's all the reasons why, it's an easy button. And they've got lots of other houses they have to do. And if I have a nice tidy spreadsheet that I can pass over and they can look at and agree with, um, I mean, and if it gets me an extra $20,000 on 70% leverage, that's real money. I tell you what, every, every I, when I do my properties, that's the exact same thing I do. I, I have my comps. I have three comps at least sitting on the table. And then I have a screenshot of all the comps that I find. Uh, like here's my overview. And then I then I have a I have a my Excel spreadsheet that details all the repairs I did on the property, and then I also uh, and generally have emails, so I have a Dropbox of my before and after pics. But I put that all uh, I put all the hard copies up on the counter for them to come, and I also do that for the clients I work with on the real estate side. And you don't get direct feedback from it, but you just know that um, you're it's working out for well for you. We had Tom Dowell uh, on the podcast, and I asked him too. He goes, "Some people take offense to that." He goes, "But I would recommend as an appraiser that you put on every single table, that because he goes, most people will look at it and at least get an idea of at what least you're a starting to. point. Yes. and you're, you're at least saying here's here's the waterline. This is what yep. we're shooting to, and they can it can come above or below it. And well, typically it's not the exact same dollar amount, but it can be within. But I tell you, on my personal properties, it has come up uh, exactly where I've wanted it. So that tells I, you you didn't ask for enough. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> there we go. Now, you guys are uh, – so I, I just want to dig into this for a second. You guys are talking about um, a task, right? So the task is – so you're doing research. You're you're building out, here's what my property is. Here's what comparable properties are. And here's what the appraisal – what we feel the appraisal should be, or at least your argument for it, or the assessed value now, getting back to the whole um, like hiring thing, are you actually doing that yourself, or, or do you have somebody like what does your team look like nowadays? Now that you've got so many different you know irons in the fire, so do you, do you like what what's your role in your business, and are you doing a lot of the day to day stuff, or you do do you just direct it? D- more direction, like hiring. I don't at our management side. M- me and Max will meet with people if we're if we're hiring on the. Operating business aside, I'm not tied at all. I'll go meet with, I mean, that's Mike and Melanie and Jenny who really run that ship and they'll ask me questions or bring me in, but I'm more feedback and opinion than I, I don't meddle with what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And um, same with, Ma- I mean, Max runs 90% of our property management company on on that side. That's Max's baby. And when we were hiring people, I mean, we've hired a lot of people who have been interns for us from Creighton, and then we just hire them and they stick with us. And um, and then it's lots of word of mouth type stuff now. So um, Max runs that. Um, we've we've hired people for um, like Angie was a hire. So it's really word of I, I don't know if I have a system for for hiring. Um, I'll I'll talk to the people and we we know we're we're s- slowly getting better at hiring slower and firing faster. Um, it's easy. Me and Max have had the challenge at that. We've kept people around, around too long and tried to get people to change for what, what we need. And it, it just, we've been unsuccessful at that, but we've, we've kept people way too long. Now it's not nearly as long as, mm. as we should. So. I, you know, that that's really interesting though, because how do you, is there a point where, you know, or is it like totally case by case? Because, you there's a there's a case for you know what we probably didn't invest enough time in training like could this could this task or this 
the skill be developed if we invested in additional training or and like how do you figure out okay this person just they can't do this and they're not going to be able to do it because of xyz yeah right I, it's an art art and a science for together sure. and there's been and their get we're like we really want it to work out for this person yeah. and we be, no i mean max takes for property management directly where we've had a few people recently that like he's been frustrated with them for months and um it's, but but it's also a pain to have to go yeah, kick somebody out and then retrain and go find the right person and do that. And we've had that we've for like the Airbnbs, we've had in-house cleaners and third-party cleaners and there's benefits to both. And like people do a good job 90% of the time and then they have a big mess up and it's just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> you, you want people to be successful because when they aren't, it's a lot more work on your plate for work you aren't planning on doing. Um, so we're, we're, Getting better and better at knowing if we've – I think we're getting better at finding the right people, and we're also getting better at when they aren't not let drag on and on and on. I'm assuming a business like yours, though, you could bring on a really big cleaning crew uh, and use them for the Airbnbs, but really you could use them in any of your businesses. Yes. So, I mean, they probably have endless amount of work you could yeah. use them for, right? We just got two new tenants in our building. Um, uh, Carmen, she has a big cleaning company, so she – she cleans a lot of our stuff, and now she's renting space from us as well, so we get a little bit of a kickback that way. But, um, yeah, and, I mean, the third party is great, but you don't – we aren't your only client, so when there's an emergency, it's much – you control employees, you don't control contractors. So having that control and having having a blended mix I think works pretty well as well. So How many Airbnbs do you have? Um, th- Probably 30-some. <laughs> We're just now getting into uh, – I signed up for Guesty, so I think that's going to save us a lot of time and help us because we're just taking bookings through Airbnb and VRBO basically, um, and this is going to get us out. And I think if this system works, we can go double or triple that, and I think that makes sense. But right now it's – I don't do any of it, so it's uh, – I'm just pushing, pushing, pushing. Let's do another one. Let's do another one. We got a new house. Let's go uh, do it. So I tend to like to push people to do stuff that I don't want to do um, and – I love growing, but... Okay, so you might have the most expansive portfolio of anybody we've ever interviewed, period. Even like the even national audience people. I don't know if anybody we've ever talked to has, has such a diverse amount of things that you're into. It's just real estate. I know, it's all real <laughs> estate. But, but you don't have, in Owen's favorite phrase, you don't have a buy box. You, you, you literally, I mean, the world is your buy box. Yes, our buy box is a smoking deal. And okay. If it's a smoking deal, we'll go figure it out. Can can I mean I I don't ask this question very often, but I am so curious. What does like seriously? What does your portfolio look like between all the businesses and all you got? Like, what is it? What is everything that you do? Like, like what oh. is your what is your business? Because I mean, you keep on dropping these little nuggets. Like, oh, I'm I'm got these 400 acres here. I got I got these businesses here. I have 30 some Airbnbs here. Like, what what is your business? Look I mean, like? Primarily, it's um, longer-term rentals is the big majority of it. But there's and houses, you have, you, duplexes. And you have, you have hundreds of those, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. We've – and it's – how do you – I don't know how you necessarily – I mean, we've got hundreds of single-family houses. Yeah. And then we've got tranches of apartments built for purpose. We have three different hotel conversions. Um, now we're doing some RV parks that we really like because of the tax. They're significantly lower on property taxes, and we can generate – similar revenues to apartments and houses by doing that. Um, there's land development, there's new construction, both for sale and for rent. Um, 
And then we've got some commercial and some new construction apartments and houses. What's, and out of all this, what's the most lucrative uh, avenue for you? Um, I think we're, we're transitioning over to more RV parks. RV parks. Yeah. Okay. Because it's um, less great headaches. cash flow, <laughs> less headaches, low taxes, low insurance. Um, and there's lots of mom and pops that have been doing it forever that are inefficient. I think we can be more efficient at. <clears throat> Off record, uh, we'll... Uh, get well, together. it's kind of on the record. Well, <laughs> wait, but off, off, off the record, let's get together. I got a, I got a referral for you of something that you might be really interested in. Okay. Of a RV park development opportunity. So cool. I'll, I'll put you in touch with that person. Yeah, I mean, driving so. up and down the interstate, you see a bunch of old, crappy, shady ones along I eighty, like all the way to Denver. I've started paying attention, and it's like people are still staying there, and they're, I don't know how you find them, and they look dirty and old. So I think there's a huge opportunity going after those. Um, so I, that's where we are now. And it's basically trying to find where can you get affordable housing because there's unlimited demand. If you can get anything affordable that average people can afford and it's getting harder and harder to do with apartments and houses and everything else because of government restrictions and higher taxes and higher, all, all the expenses are going way up and um, there's less and less stuff that people can actually afford. So Anyway, anywhere you can do that, it makes a whole lot of sense. Ben, big picture. So all of the uh, businesses and asset classes that you're involved in, is there anything you're excited about right now that uh, if you're looking ahead, maybe the next year, couple of years, uh, what, what's your, you and your team, like, what are you going to be involved in? Uh, I, I really, really like the RV park. So that's, I mean, probably the biggest thing. And that's all kind of, so the initial... Elkhorn River stuff that we got that we thought we was going to make a bunch of money on tiny homes. I mean, that didn't work. But because of that, we were looking – because of that event we had out there with Colin, um, somebody came out and actually she was in – Ashley, who's one of – she's one of our property managers who's phenomenal. Her and her husband owned a RV spot on a random RV community that the own had been flooded and the owner didn't put any more money in. They brought us that deal. That got us out to Iowa where we're doing this RV park now that's a couple hundred RV spots with expansion for another – at least another 100 or 150. That got us on the RV track, and then because of that, um, we've found a couple other spots. Um, so it's one bad investment. I mean I think we're break even right now on the Elkhorn stuff with what we've got going and what we've – the cash we've gotten in and stuff, but it's led us to a couple other opportunities that's – Interesting. Um, the the other interesting thing that we're doing is we're very short on event space in and around Omaha, um, and kind of again tied to the river. We hired this girl out of or Angie out of uh, Vegas who'd run events for some of the casinos off Strip, and she's very very talented at what she does. She's able to make money out on the river, but we need to get her a good location. So we've been looking for event type space. We had one potential spot. But then a, a winery came up where we want to go build a big barn, and she says all day ten thousand dollars a day for quality wedding space. So if we wow. can get a couple of barns out there, we're just so under capacity. On I mean, you go and you hear about like Mike tied to his hotels and stuff. I mean, they're booked out for two or three years in advance, um, where it's uh, could be very lucrative having good spaces, not just for like weddings, but um, company parties and everything else. There's not a lot of solutions 
out there. So that's what we're going to go focus on. I had a client that bought a, a spot over in Glenwood, Iowa, and uh, it, he got a, a vineyard and he got he has the wedding space in the hall. And he bought it with bookings. We bought it during the during COVID, and they and they were they kind of got scared off. They he got it for pennies on the dollar, and he's like he's like man, he goes, I've never bought a place like this, but I ran it just on my regular rental pro forma, and it's coming back at like twenty five percent. So he goes, I think it makes sense, and he says one of the most lucrative properties that he's ever bought. And then all of these kind of have where they're connected back. I mean, if we have the winery, and then we can sell our own beer, distribute our own beer within there, and we kind of. Put it in they, they all kind of exactly it cycles <laughs> through and it kind of all comes comes through and we can use our talented teams on a bunch of different projects and there's all kind of a um, group where it everything feeds its itself so Ben what what do you um, so what are you excited about and what do you like uh, worry about at night so uh, you know having somebody that has this much under their uh, you know overview I guess is interesting because like what are the things that you worry about on a day-to-day basis if you're awake at four in the morning do you have uh like because you're you seem like a really optimistic guy you problem solve you find deals you you provide solutions for sellers that are have problem properties that you're like you know what we'll we'll take that off your hands and then you repurpose them into like really cool stuff yeah but what's like if you're laying awake at night, like a lot of people do, what are you worried about? I mean, right now it's um, interest rates with new construction are challenging. We have a lot of great projects, um, but we have, um, I mean, so it's really looking, how far out do you build where, because to to build in Papillion, it takes two or three years from the time you start to the time you finish. So it's like, the, the, the timing of lots and the timing on when you bring things in is is challenging. I mean, you have a long runway, but do you want to it, – it's hard to look past. Is it going to continue this way? Are rates going to drop? Um, and it all comes down to an affordable the, how affordable housing is and can people afford that house. Costs continue to go up, and there's going to continue to be needed – be a need for new housing, new construction, replenishing the old stock. But if costs keep going up and rev, uh, wages don't, how, that's the hard thing to predict because the time horizon on land development to construction to getting a house for people is so long. That's the you, you can't have a crystal ball. You just have to be patient and be willing to stick with it. You don't you you can't grow beyond the size that you can maintain it yourself because then you don't control it. So staying in a lane that you know you can control and you have enough where you can control your your capacity is the thing that I, I guess I, I think about the most. Yeah. And we're trying to solve that like we're because we, we build some of our own rentals and stuff. And that's one way we kind of mitigate some of that risk is if we have excess capacity that doesn't sell or that we can't do what we want, can we go back and build rentals? Uh, because those will generate cash. One, okay, one quick aside uh, question here. So in Omaha, Nebraska, this is a like you know microeconomics uh, snapshot. What does it cost if you're a builder and you want to put out a spec home and sell it? What is the minimum acceptable profit that you think is realistic? And what is the price point in Omaha, Nebraska, that we could sell profitably a house at if you're a developer or a builder? Uh, depends who you are. DR, DR can uh, subsidize it for a long time, and uh, 
they have deep, deep pockets. And the, the question is, um, it, it's very specific to the individual because a lot of builders don't control their lot. So, I mean, th- there's development profit, there's lot profit, there's builder profit, all those different buckets kind of roll into each other. So if you're buying retail lots and you're a builder and you only build five homes a year, I mean, that's completely different from D.R. Horton who buys an entire neighborhood in cash, develops it in cash, and they can sell it with no profit or negative profit just to keep their crews busy and, and churning. So there's a huge spectrum on that. I mean, builders, I think builders like to be in the 20% gross margins on, on their stuff. And as cost, I mean, but look back with like COVID and with all the delays and trying to get stuff. I mean, from when they signed a contract to when they actually were turning out projects or turning out a finished product, costs can change significantly yeah. really, really quickly. So it's, I, I don't think you can answer that. I definitely can't answer that question, but. Um. No, I love, but no, I love the peek behind the curtain though, because I think that's, uh, I, myself included, I've never done a ground up uh, development and that's always scared me. And because the long lead time you have, you know, but by the time you break, you know, get the property under contract to breaking ground to actually, you know, getting it sold is such a long lead time. So many things can happen with interest rates, supply, demand, you know, all those things. So it's, it's. I mean, you got to have some cojones to to be in that business, but so like our development on two hundred uh, about two hundred fourth and Q, we've got some row homes that we've built out, and we've got first phase is six sixty eight units, and they're side by side. They're four, five, six side by side townhomes. Those were bringing um, the two eighty five to three hundred, and that seems to be a really good price point. That yeah, people are. I mean, it doesn't really you can't buy anything new cheaper than that. And if you hit a school district, um, it tends to make sense. And it can make sense. We've got homeowners and we've also got investors who are looking, they've sold something for a crazy amount of money. Now what do you go buy? That's, yeah. Um, so if you can go buy something turnkey, that's easy and new and where you get long-term tenants. So that's, I, that's as cheap as we've been able to figure out. And that's dense. That's a lot of units in an area and they're, you have neighbors side by side, but people are willing to live with that one. I mean, what the, the next option about the cheapest, I think DR has got some single family homes. They start like three twenty, three thirty, but there's really not a lot. I mean, three fifty to three eighties really. Jeez. And you think, and then you add two to 3% property tax on it. So it's not just the payment and going from 3% to six or seven or 8% interest, but then all those taxes start kicking in after the first year as well. So it just makes it very, very challenging to have a place that you can live affordably. Yeah. Well, one thing I, I was kind of picking up from the conversation that we were talking about earlier was that you've really figured out a way to work on your business, not necessarily in your business. And I, and I think that kind of reverting back to your question, how do you sleep at night? Uh, that's the first thing that started coming to my mind is that you've been able to, you were working in the business for years. And and the reason you can sleep at night is because now you can you're, you can look at everything in a 360 view, right? You can just kind of step back. You can you can direct some people, have the right people in place, and you can sleep night soundly, right? Yeah, I I, I sleep pretty sound, but yeah. I uh, <laughs> I mean I'm very fortunate with I've got a great relationship with my dad, and there's like things that I, I can get wound up on certain things that ultimately don't matter. I mean everybody gets wound up on different things, and it's having I mean he's he's always kind of my backstop where I have somebody to do, I can call and be like, hey, is 
Should I worry about this? Is this crazy or not? Um, and having him, him along with really all my business partners, I've got I've got a very strong support system where there's a lot of different people that um, have my back and I have their back 110%. So um, that that team is very, very strong. And I think we're getting to a point where we've, we've had some different partners and there's been some good ones. And I've definitely seen some bad partnerships as well. But um, the, the core team is very, very strong. And um, so that, that helps you sleep very well at night, knowing that everybody else cares as much or more than I care about any individual issue. So with the amount of volume that you're doing, is there other companies that you've started, you know, like you, yeah, is your construction all in-house is, um, I mean, have you looked into doing like maybe an insurance branch? Cause I mean, we've talked people, about the captive insurance. We haven't yeah. done that. That probably makes sense to do. Um, it's, it's on the list of things that we've looked at it, thought about it, didn't do it. Now it's, two years later and it's like, we should I mean, probably do that. I mean, because the volume you have, there's insurance agents that don't even have that as that much volume in their whole entire portfolio. Mm-hmm. And that could be a really lucrative area for you. Um, you know, you could have your own real estate. You could be your own real estate name, right? You could have one, a one, be a one person broker. And, and well, Max, Max, Max has his brokerage. So okay. any deal we go do, I mean, we're keeping our two or two, 2.4% or whatever, Whatever. And if somebody brings us a deal, I mean, it's different where they, they earn it. But um, we we're anytime we can keep our fees, I mean, those fees make make a difference. And um, we we negotiate with those fees in mind. And I love um, that. <laughs> well, there's a question that we always like to ask, and uh, it's a fun one for us. But do you have any like crazy or weird investment stories? Like, have you found like crazy hoard houses, dead bodies and properties. Do you have, you have anything that stand out that was just like, you know, the, the more units you get, the more things that are going to happen. I mean, we had a, we bought at a foreclosure auction, a, a hoarder house that was the whole first floor was three feet. And it was a big four bedroom is on, I think Webster street, 35th and Webster. Maybe um, the whole first floor was three feet or more deep of books. So there was tens of thousands of books that were just sitting there, some interesting ones. We we ended up we, – we felt bad because you don't just want to go throw books yeah, right, away right. in the dumpster. You're like, yeah. somebody Nazis. should get some value. But, <laughs> I mean, that was one of the more bizarre ones. I mean, we've we've had people die in units. We've had people kill themselves in units. We've had some um, – I mean, all that. But the more units you have, you're going to have more and more of those things. And that's – we're really big on – Safety and processes. I mean, we, we try to get into all our units every three months. Um, there's – and me and Max talk about this quite a bit because we, we care about all of our tenants. And it's, But when you have so many things are going to happen, we've had people slip and fall and break a leg. Um, but with like our unit inspections, we're always checking smoke detectors and carbon monoxide uh, because you, you hate – you can't control once you turn the unit over to somebody else. And you, you think you have nice, safe units, but – when you have hundreds or thousands of tenants, there's there's weird things that that happen. So that's one thing we try to do every um, every quarter. We're getting better and better at trying to get eyes on all our properties. And um, you tend not to hear from tenants for a lot of tenants until there's really bad issues, and you never want that to happen. Um, but I haven't been in every single unit. I mean, the, the the amount of time it takes to go inspect all these units is. Um, it's a lot of work and we're, we're trying to get better and better at that. But, um, 
Yeah. I'm convinced that just like uh, property management who has, you know, a checklist of stuff they need to have in place before tenants move in, I'm convinced that tenants have that same checklist which says immediately after the after getting the keys and the property manager walking out the door, the first thing they do is take out the batteries of the smoke detector. <laughs> like that, I mean, it's, this I have no idea why this happens, but it seems like every single time here, it's like, And we've got I mean, now we charge so like if we're going and walking these inspections, if they haven't changed their furnace filter, if they're missing batteries, we're charging all that stuff so that yep. at least they're feeling the pain when we do that. And hopefully that starts to bite a little bit more because they know, and who knows, maybe they just go solve the issue because they know we're coming to inspect in the next couple of days. And then it goes back to, you can't control other people. You can only do, there, there's only so much you can do. And yeah. um, there's an apartment building I'm, I'm getting ready to list for a client. And we did our walkthrough yesterday. And as we're walking through, I'm like, Every single smoke detector was either pulled off the ceiling, wires hanging down, yeah. <laughs> or or open. I'm like, and I, and I, the conversation literally was, I go, you do not have a working smoke detector in this building, period. And he's like, we will have those replaced tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, he's like, they were all there initially, <laughs> right? Yeah, like, that's but, probably because they. I don't know if they need batteries for something. My, my remote went out, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna go steal the battery. Yeah, yeah, Although yeah. That's nine volts, so that doesn't quite make. I don't know. It's uh, yeah, nothing. Nothing mystery. surprises you with with tenants. That's for sure. <laughs> all right, so Ben, this has been a lot of fun. God, we've covered so many things. This is great. I feel like we could do this episode three times over and probably still not get to the bottom of everything that's been cat in real estate. Oh, there's but nothing funnier than chatting real estate. So that's right. It's, it's real easy to do. But we have a... We're almost out of time. Let's get into the OT with Owen and Ted. Where we ask the same questions of every guest. And uh, we've got about five or six of them. You ready for these? Let's do it. Let's do this. All right. First question for you. What is your first book going to be titled or about? Uh, starting today, there's, there's no better. I mean, the, the sooner you get started real estate specific, the sooner you get started, the better, because it's, there's a huge compounding effect. I'm jealous with like some of the guys we brought in and they're at early twenties and they're starting today. And it's like, man, I wish if I could have started right out of college or oh, in high school, it would be so much better, but same, yeah. starting, there's no better time to start than today. Even if you make a mistake, you'll learn a whole lot. So get, get started today. Love it. If you could sit here at the table for one hour with one person, anybody that's alive right now, who would it be? I think it'd be a lot of fun to talk to Donald Trump. Yeah? Yeah. I like Donald Trump. <laughs> it pissed my aunts off a whole whole bunch. And if nothing else, that would be the reason why, because they, they'd be losing their mind. So Donald Trump. <laughs> I, well, yeah, that's certainly He does got lots of real estate. <laughs> yeah. All right. Next question for you. Uh, what did you want to be? What did little Ben Cat want to be when he grew up? I think when I started, um, I got my, my grandpa, he farmed. Um, I was always super impressed with him going out and working with his hands and working hard. And, uh, so at first I wanted to be a farmer and then I think I was a airline pilot is what I thought. And then I realized that's just kind of a glorified bus driver. So then I passed on that. (laughs) 
Maybe a fighter pilot would have been cooler, but I, I no way I'd qualify <laughs> for that. Bus drive. You know, I was, and, a bu- I was a bus driver at one point in my life. Uh, <laughs> I had a limo company. I, did, I, drove, I drove the big Greyhound MCI buses. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with driving buses. It was, um, it just was, not for me. It was, it was actually a lot of fun. This is the 81st episode that we've had of Rhea Radio, and I think that Ted has literally said on every single episode that he has had the same job as our guest. Like, there's always a point in my life I had, like, four jobs. So just, you know. Hey, so if I reached out to you a year from now, uh, what's going to be different in your investment portfolio? What's going to change? Um, I'm sure it, I will have grown. I don't exactly. I think we continue to be more stable. I mean, we've gone – last year we bought a couple of big portfolios of North Omaha houses that we've turned – most of them, but we're continually going through. So I think our portfolio will continue to be cleaner and our systems continue to get better and better. Um, I mean, maybe by maybe another five years, we'll be able to get tax returns done in the summer and not what, <laughs> September 15th or whatever, but uh, more, more organized and more, more systems in place. That's great. Um, okay. So we are at your funeral uh, 60 years from now, 70 years from now. And I mean, we're going to live a lot longer. Medical technology. <laughs> I see the look on your face. Uh, Seventy years from now, at your funeral, who's going to be giving your eulogy, and what do you hope they'll say about you? Um, I don't know. I kind of like to outlive my brother, but he's my younger brother. So maybe my my younger brother. I worked just as hard as anybody else, and um, overly generous would be the two. I love that. Me too. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, what mentors in your life would you like to give a shout out to? Uh, I mean, hands down, my I wouldn't be where I am today without my dad and all the input he's given. And Peter Cat, yes, Peter Cat, yep, him, and uh, he he's been by far the the biggest mentor in my life. Steve Shampoo's been really big. He's him and my dad go back and forth. I mean, my dad's helped Steve. Steve's helped my dad. They're both. I think mentor each other. So we had Andrea on the podcast not too long ago. Oh yeah, yeah. her Steve's. Awesome. So um, those are the really the top two people in, in um, I think, the, the real estate world anyways that have been huge. I love it. Uh, so if you are looking at your business or your life right now, is there anything that you're looking for in particular that somebody listening to this might be able to put you in touch with the right person, maybe have an idea uh, for you that you're struggling with? Um, anything that uh, is kind of on the to-do list for the cat conglomerate um i've got at the top of my marker board right now no new deals but i've had that and (laughs) three more things that popped up so um right now what i'm looking for i mean always looking to build the team and lots of people come end up popping into my world and everything and it's really random it's not necessarily something i'm looking for so always looking to uh, chat real estate and talk and do you have any uh any platforms or any ways like if somebody listening to this wanted to reach out to you and say they're like you know what i loved your story and i have something i think we we should talk about what's the best way to reach you email um i don't really have anything out email would be the best uh want to share it bencat1 at gmail.com so that's my name and then the number one um yeah i don't I probably eventually get to me if you'd send me a Facebook message or <laughs> LinkedIn, but I don't. Yeah. Emails, I live by my inbox. So shoot me an email and I'll always respond. It might, I try to get back to everybody within a week, but um, I, I like having a clean inbox. So that's one, one tick I have is I like that being at zero every day. And that 
rarely happens, but when it does, it, I feel good. So nice. I know that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> well, I tell you what, Ben, um, you were the one of the first investors that I met and somebody I've looked up to you since I met you. Uh, you never disappoint. You're always growing. You're always going to the next level. And I can't even imagine the legacy that you're going to leave on the city uh, as as you age and things keep on progressing because I have a feeling that you're going to be even a bigger deal as you keep on getting older and, and building. Uh, so um, appreciate you. I appreciate this opportunity. Uh, I think that uh, you're just uh, truly a really good person. And uh, every time we get to chat with you, we get to learn something new. So thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, guys. It's a whole lot of fun. So <laughs> Well, with that, Owen Dasher, we see us out. On behalf of Ted Kosh, not Denless Bertrand because he's not here. Loser. <laughs> Sorry. Feel better, buddy. Uh, and Rhea Radio, I'm Owen Dashner, and you've been listening to Ben. I am not an appraiser, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express in Plattsmouth last night. Cat, signing Sign off. Me.